clubhouse. Spencer, I fear everything your parents fought so hard to build is being ripped from us. You are its only hope. You are our only hope. You must hurry, Spencer. You must hurry. Or there will be nothing left to fight for. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1923, a prequel series to Yellowstone. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the season finale of 1923, Nothing Left to Lose. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan and once again directed by Ben Richardson. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Yellowstone 1923-1883 and 4-6's discussion and news group to discuss 1923 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows, which is just... Adding every day. <laughs> Ever growing. This this universe is in the expansion phase still. It has not it begun really to is. contract. There's a lot going on. Just a reminder that we assume you have watched this episode. And so if you don't want to be spoiled, you should pause this, go watch, and then come back and listen to us. Uh, also, we're not going to be doing a step-by-step recap of the episode. We talk about the characters and the themes, and we discuss and, and deep dive into the show that way. Mike, how do we feel about this episode? I mean, what's just like your first... Just first, immediate, like, turned it off. How did you feel? <sighs> <laughs> I like all the sighing. I mean, it's... Uh, I don't think this was a great finale. I don't think it was a great finale. I, I like, on the whole, I like this episode. But I don't think it did what a finale is supposed to do. A finale to me, a season finale to me, is supposed to answer questions X, Y, and Z and introduce the threads for next seasons A, B, and C. Now, given the storylines we have in 1923 and what we have spent the last seven hours before tonight building towards, we got no resolution on any of on any of the major storylines. And in fact not new threads for next season, but just continuations and, and new obstacles for next season on already existing storylines. There's There should be a, a well-crafted season finale ends most of your storylines and then introduces what comes next for those characters that are continuing on in the story. This is just mid-mash ending in weird spots for everyone. And, you know, you and I, I think we're going to spend a lot of time in this episode. We have questions about pacing. We have questions about choices. Because I think the pacing, I think we both agree, the pacing in this episode and now as a whole was all over the place. Everyone, yeah. it's it, it all happening at, at very different speeds. 
it's a little jarring because consistency wise is this is getting sped up and not having the time dedicated to it while this storyline is being spun out interminably. But why? Uh, you, you have only so many. This is a limited series. Helen Mirren was just nominated for Best Actress in a limited series. You don't have forever. This is not mainline Yellowstone where you have as many seasons as you want to tell the story. We're locked into eight and now 16 maybe total hours to tell the story. I was looking for something a little more ending definitively and then introducing new for next season. That's what I was looking for. And I don't think I got it across the board here. I agree with you on all of those points. And pacing for me across the entire season was also an issue. I felt like the storyline with Banner, we basically just spun our wheels out for the entire season. I mean, he's really in the same position he is He's better off now, but he's like, it really, nothing's changed. He's not in prison. He's not nothing. I mean, we just kind of ran in a circle a little bit with him. Also, when we're talking about like consistency and sort of having that really nice, usually when we have a pilot, we can often feel like there's a bookend with the finale of a season. I didn't feel that either. Like we had no Elsa. She was heavy at the beginning and then just drifted away and we had nothing. Now, I didn't necessarily 100% love Elsa voiceovers all the time. I'm all, I'll admit that. You guys can look back and listen and and see that like sometimes I was like, I'm not sure why she's exactly saying anything, but just for the sake of some sort of continuity, some sort of sense of like, remember, this is a story we're telling across the whole way. It felt like what happened, <laughs> you know, like she she was just gone out of this. There's a lot of things going on in this story that I'm very much questioning where they're going with it and why they're choosing to go that direction. What what was the point? Could they have made the same point using a different method. So I know we're going to deep dive into all this stuff, but that's my initial feel. Let's start with Sicily. Let's start with Alex and Spencer, because I think a, a lot of head scratching for this one. I, I know you and I are having it. I'm certainly having it. And I can only imagine once fans get a hold of this episode, which will drop by the time you guys hear us, because we don't release these before the episodes come out, uh, because we have a no spoilers policy. I think there's going to be a lot of head scratching uh, on this storyline, because I think a lot of people are really invested in this storyline line more than more than most and again it's not what a season finale is supposed to do you're supposed to end threads and then introduce new threads and this is just feels like a weird way station of separating them and and i have and i have some theories on why he might do this why taylor and the writers and creatives might have done this i'm not super psyched about the answers i have i have ideas why but i'm not not crazy about them (laughs) but here's the thing i want to start with you have this great cliffhanger in episode seven where uh, alex is sitting on spencer's lap at the trotteria they're they're making out they're eating rice balls it's they're they're finally having a, a moment to breathe and you get arthur the fiance alexandra and that's how the episode ends Panic on her face of, uh, uh, or, or get the hell out of here. What's happening? This guy look on her face and the episode ends. This episode picks up and doesn't touch upon that at all. The first time we see them, they're boarding the RMS Majestic, the cruise ship. They see Arthur ahead on another gangplank. They're making comments about how we're just going to hide in the cabin for three weeks to avoid them. And, and I don't want, I'm dreading going to London and, and all of this. 
No, no, <laughs> I, I am. I am really right. okay. I'm really okay with things happening off screen. This is something we're talking about in our Your Honor podcast right now. That's a show that really takes advantage of things, major things happening off screen. Given the limited amount of time to tell this limited series story, I understand things have to happen. Time jumps have to happen. Things have to happen off screen that we don't get. Maybe we get backfill information. They tell us what happened. You know, they go backwards. Maybe, like maybe they a don't. letter or whatever. Right, or a or flashback like at something right. They hit or the a high memory points. memory or something, yeah. Nothing here. This this was jarring to me because it's as if it didn't happen. It, it's right. not touched upon. It's, it's almost like that last scene didn't happen. Or at least it didn't matter that it happened like you know what i mean like that and and that's the stuff that i can't stand is like why do you show us something you went through the trouble of getting the actors finding the location lighting the set draw you know writing the words saying go filming it putting it on paying that entourage you paid that entourage for one none of it mattered who cares that they ate at that cafe mike who cares who cares it meant nothing well, here's the thing. So if that episode ends with them just eating rice balls and smiling at each other and I, you need loftier goals, no, I don't. And credits, you know, creator, showrunner, producer, Taylor Sheridan and the credits roll. Fine with that. Yeah. Have the shock be that she sees him on the other gang. Plane. At the beginning of the episode, I've been like, yeah, oh, my God, they're getting on like the a- same. Right. Not like, oh, my God, but like, oh, my fucking God, I can't believe we're getting on the same boat as this. Like, oh, my God, you know, like that would have actually been like a shock, you know, like it would be a shock as opposed to how that happened. And it was like, okay, and then nothing. But Jennifer is there, her friend, you know, they're all there, but they don't interact before they see her on the top deck of the boat. Like, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It's not that they skipped over the thing, which obviously I wanted to see. I was invested in it. I had a whole theory that maybe her parents were there with, though we learned this episode, her parents had gone back right back to London along with all the bridesmaids, except for Jennifer, as soon as she walked out and ran away from the engagement. But that whole bri- bridal party is there and Arthur and his parents are there. It doesn't make sense that it's not touched upon because everything in this episode is as if they didn't run into each other in the Trotteria. There's no, I told you, there's nothing, they have interactions in this episode. There's no, I told you in the Trotteria the other day, we weren't going to have this discussion. I had moved on. There was nothing, there was nothing connecting it. That drives me crazy. That feels like sloppy editing. It feels like someone just took a hatchet to film instead of a scalpel. And and I'm really, really easygoing with, with, again, with things happening behind the scenes, but bad editing editing that makes no sense because i follow the details i watch these episodes four fucking times like i'm take i take nine pages of notes on these episodes that i then have to condense down to a two-page outline i know what's happening so if you're not going to give a shit about the story you're telling why am i taking nine fucking pages of notes why are we recording for two hours? Like, why? Reward me. Okay, okay, okay. Reward me for the work that we're putting in as viewers. Okay, to be completely fair, though, like, we've had issues with the Sheridan universe when it comes to some of these small details, like timing, right? Like, really messy about dates and ages and things like that. Like, we've had a hard time with them because of how much how much energy and effort is put in to really paying attention. And not because we're trying to nitpick. Like, let's be super clear. We both enjoyed this episode in terms of fantastic acting, amazing individual scenes between actors. Like, there was some really great stuff here, too. But 
you want us invested in this huge universe, which by all accounts, there's not one of us who would say, oh, I'm sure that's very easy to keep track of. I'm sure it's very no. difficult. Yeah. But I mean, if you are gonna if you're gonna set out to do this size of of a franchise, really, right? You have to pay attention to the details. You have to really say where did that last episode end off? Okay, well, we can't just leave it at that. Like we have right. to come back and address that in some way. Maybe eventually they will, although we both know they won't. <laughs> Here, here's here's a great example of what I'm talking about. In 1883. 1883 had tons of inconsistencies that I I totally glossed over. People were losing their mind about, and I, and, and I would say, and I would defend it on this podcast, and I would defend it in, in social media groups and on our Facebook group, I would say, but the larger story is what matters. Please don't get hung up on the details, because, you know, if, if they're locating a river in the wrong place, or they said they were going in this direction, but it turns out they actually must be going in this direction, that kind of stuff is, is minutia that, oh, for whatever reason, narratively, you need to get wrong. Here's a great example of how 1883 made me feel like I'm feeling right now. There is a whole plot, an entire section of an episode dedicated to Elsa turning 17. Very specifically turning to 17, they made it a center of the plot. There's a whole section about her birthday and her father not really remembering, and it was connected to the Civil War, and it was a whole very specific thing that she had turned 17 in this episode. And th within th two or three episodes later, there's a whole conversation about how she's 18. No. No! <laughs> you can't do that. Taylor, you wrote every one of these episodes. You yeah. wrote every one of these episodes. Ben Richardson directed the, these last two episodes. The same two main creative people wrote the Trotteria scene last week and wrote the opening to this scene and, and the dialogue on the top deck of the ship, this scene. But you would think strangers wrote them because they're not connected. What happens in this episode completely, it, it, it doesn't make you go, hmm, it makes no sense. And that's <laughs> the kind of nitpick that, that drives me crazy. I find that disrespectful to the viewers. I do too, because and, and disrespectful to the concept of storytelling, like one of the really big deals here about the show is honesty, authentic storytelling, mm -hmm. gritty, but real, like realism, right? So this is right. going to be a difficult journey. You are going to see things, and boy, did we see things this episode that you don't want to see, that you never wanted to see, ever. You have to kind of get into your mindset of like, this is hard, but they're trying to tell how difficult life was during this time and all the things people had to do and all the things they had to sacrifice. It really screws with the realism if you do dump scenes, if you do just dump the, the cafe scene and then never talk about it again. Like you start you start to get into this place where it's like, well, you have to kind of ignore whole sections then, right. like you're saying about her age, which 100% uh, takes you right out of any type of realism. Like, I don't even know how old this girl is anymore. You know, I don't even know where those people went or like, did those people just turn and walk away? Like, what happened? It's not the type of storytelling that we expected. It takes you out of it. That's exactly right. It takes you out of it. Mm -hmm. When this episode begins and you see them getting on the gangplank and the way they're talking about Arthur in the, different, in the distance without making any mention to what must have happened a couple of days before, right? Because they were getting ready to leave on Thursday when they're arriving in Sicily in that episode. So right. let's say, let's say two, two, three, four days prior that scene happens. 
there's no reference to that. I can't believe we're seeing them again. I can't believe the discussion we had then. Like, you, if you're not going to mention it at all, why, why, why even include it? It would have been more effective to not include that scene if you weren't going to make it part of the narrative. Or have them say something, have her say something like, man, I don't know if I can make this trip. And I know she says, can we book another boat or whatever? And he's like, oh, we'll just stay in our room. But they should have been like, but after that cafe interaction, God, I just, I can't even deal with him. Like it just a couple sentences would have been enough to be like, I can't even see him again, you know? Right. Whatever would have worked. But yeah. So, okay. We can't be this dead horse, if you will, or, or live sex worker. We should beat no one at all. I, I don't know want you want any. to get to Whitfield, but we got to get through the Armist. We have to get to the Armist Majestic. I don't want first. to get to Whitfield. I wish Whitfield would fall off the edge of the earth, man. Let's, let's talk about the Armist Majestic. Armist right. Majestic was a real ship, Caroline. It was a White Star Ocean Liner that worked the North Atlantic run. It originally launched in 1914. This is actually really uh, an interesting story. It began being built in 1914. World War One interrupted its completion. It was being built, actually, by a German company. It was originally going to be called the SS Bismarck. At the end of World War One, the German builders complete the building of it and then hand it over to the Allies as part of war reparations. And the ship became known as the White Star Line flagship RMS Majestic. Uh, at the time it was built, it was actually the largest ship in the world. Uh, it was the largest ship until 1935. During the 1920s, the Majestic proved to be extremely popular. After her May 1922 maiden voyage, the Majestic became one of the most booked cruise liners afloat. It carried more passengers in 1923 than any other Atlantic liar, uh, liner. She carried more passengers than her sister ships in 1924, 26, 28, and 1930, and earned the affectionate nickname The Magic Stick from her cruise and passengers what she did not do was travel to or from sicily and you know what i don't care that she didn't travel to her. <laughs> this is the difference i don't care that they put this famous ship that only went from london to new york in italy i think that's fun they've done it with a bunch of these famous ships that were actually in the world that didn't go to africa or didn't sail from italy i don't care about that that's a fun world thing that they're putting in this world i love it because let's we talk about the armist majestic but they're not ignoring <laughs> what the armist majestic did last episode right no i agree you know what you know white star line you know immediately the the ship I think of is Titanic, right? We all know that one. And I actually found it odd that it being 1923 and Titanic sinking in 1912, that that wouldn't be on the tip of everyone's tongues, really getting on a White Star Line, you know, ship. I'd feel a little like, hmm, wasn't they the same people who also had Titanic? I thought that part was weird, but I kind of feel like they purposely didn't mention Titanic on account of all the similarities that were going on here. If you remember Titanic, the the story, the movie, not the real historical happening, there were characters that are so similar to these characters that were also on that boat. So we can play devil's advocate here because I, I, you have a good point. There are a lot of cribbing from Titanic here. We made the joke in the last episode. The last episode? Yes. I no, I, I, the one before, I think it was before. actually the one before. That's right, because we, mm -hmm. we only got seven minutes of them last episode. 
two episodes ago, we made the joke that when they, after they are finishing, they're consummating their marriage, they go to the prow of the ship. And we even refer to it as their Titanic moment where he takes her and he has her kind of at the very front and shows her the lights in the distance and all that. But you're right. They're, the characters in here, the Arthur character is very much, very much like the Billy Zane character. Cal. Uh, Cal, the not having the tuxedo that puts Spencer in the in the Leonardo uh, DiCaprio role, aka Jack. For those of you who don't care about actors' names but pay attention to the characters, the uh, you know the whole fish out of water, the uh, Rose the, is, the is the Alex going to the formal dinner. Going to the formal dinner is exactly what happens with Jack. You know, inviting him to the formal dinner it was meant to embarrass him in that portion, but in this one, it was like. Come on, Alex. Like, what even were you doing? You know, what was this? Let's take a listen to a clip because then we got to we got to break down some actions that Alan and things that Alex does and says in this episode. And let's determine if maybe she's in the family way. How angry are my parents? Angry enough to meet that day for London and all the bridesmaids. All but one. I didn't see how me missing safari would help Arthur's broken heart. His heart isn't breaking, only his pride. I'd say all of him is broken. He didn't leave camp once. Barely left his tent. May we have a moment alone, sir? <laughs> the boy's destroyed. His family's furious. I don't know him. That's love. That's lust. He's a hunter, Alexandra. And when the chase is done, he will find something else to hunt. The chase is done. <gasps> Alexandra, <laughs> you must think of your family and your standing. The only family I'm thinking of is the one I'm starting. The only family I'm thinking of is the one I'm starting. That's not how you talk about it if it's just you and your husband you married on a boat headed for Marseille. You could say that, you know, we, we are the we're starting our family by getting married. You could. But you're right. I mean, 90, 99 percent of the time you're saying starting a family, you mean having a baby. Right. And when you combine that with her nausea again and, and you think that nausea, maybe oh, they've been on the sh ship now for a couple of days. We learn actually that night that that's their first day. So she's immediately nauseous on the boat. Now, I've been on a lot of cruises in my life. I love cruising. I love being on the water. I wish I owned a cruise ship. I would stay on it all the time. If I had the money, I would take one of those cruise ships that never port and just sail around the world. I don't get seasick. I don't get nauseous, but I know plenty of people do. And so it is possible that she was just being seasick from being inside the cabin, where nausea is worse than if you're on top deck usually. But maybe she was also sick because she's having some morning sickness. Can I also throw out, I mean, wasn't it established that she is a frequent traveler? Yes. Because don't Brits travel to get other people's cultures and blah, blah, blah. They had that entire conversation. They were like laughing. I find it hard to believe she wouldn't know how to deal with motion sickness. Or warn him, say, hey, by the way, I get really nauseous and get a lot and get seasickness. It's the only way to travel, right? If you're going to see the world in, in 1923. she should know what to do, though. Like, for like, say she doesn't warn him or anything, right? right? But, but just like laying there moaning and stuff like, I thought you were a frequent traveler. You have no idea what you should do. You have no idea you should go get some fresh air. Like, 
I don't even think you have to be a traveler. I mean, my God, when you feel queasy, isn't the first thing you think like I should get some fresh air? Unless the unless she was trying very hard to combat it because she did not want to go up on top deck, right? She Understood. didn't. I right. mean, and I think they even kind of intimate that that she mm-hmm. has, she is suffering in silence because she we're not in silence. She's just suffering in the room because she doesn't want to go up up top and finally he says come on you're you gotta go get fresh air like yeah we have to we have to roll the dice here on someone seeing us but i i like the theory that she's actually pregnant with those two little clues put in there so there is a quick scene i think there's actually a couple of quick scenes too where she makes a motion for her hand to her stomach which you and i have talked about in i think this podcast and several podcasts where is tv indication for woman is pregnant and maybe doesn't realize it yet I also think that we've discussed this in other podcast episodes, but oftentimes very good storytellers really do a good job of making parallels when you have like same couple type things going on. So we have other things going on with Jack and Elizabeth. It would actually make perfect sense in the teeter-totter balancing of things that then we would find out that Alex is pregnant. Yes. And and very tailored to do that, right? The yin mm-hmm. and yang Absolutely. and very yin and yang kind of parallel storytelling that, that yes. we come to expect from him. So let's get to dinner that night. I, I, I got to tell you, I laughed when he said the things to do for love, which is a Game of Thrones line. It's it's mm. what Jamie says when he pushes Bran out of the window when Bran catches him stooping his sister Cersei. Uh, he right before he pushes Bran out, what he thinks is going to kill him. He says the things I do for love. Spencer says in this episode the things I do for love. Except for he's not pushing a child out of a window. He's having a problem tying his bow tie. And I thought <laughs> I thought how funny and noble of you, Spencer, your sacrifice for your bow tie. I don't know. Maybe that's a nod to another storyline that's going on in this episode that uh, maybe does wink at Game of Thrones. Well, we talked about Game of Thrones last week, and that storyline continued because uh, that storyline continued this week. So we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones again. Let's get up top because we spend or let's get to dinner because we spend it watching Arthur stew and stew and prove that in every way, shape and form, he is the antithesis of who Spencer is. He wants to you could see him stewing and his father actually gives him good advice. His his father essentially tells him, you know, better now that you know that Alex doesn't love you versus you marry her and you find out she doesn't love you. She did you a favor by running away and that way you know now. And also, you've already lost the girl. Don't lose your dignity as well. And Arthur does not want to hear it. Do you know people like Arthur? Have you run into the, these kinds of people, especially these kinds of men who can't take their their ego being so bruised? Well, sure. <laughs> sure. And especially, I mean, once that they start to really establish who these people are, and I know we're going to get into their titles and, and their positions in the world, I don't think any of them are used to being told no, or you can't have what you want. For sure. Which leads to this fantastic line that I cannot get enough of listening to. Let's take a look, listen to Spencer try and put Arthur in his place. Got about 30 seconds of bullshit in me. Then I'm going to mop the fucking floor with you. We should go. I will not allow him to shape the course of our evening. What happened to hide in our room for three weeks? That was the girl in me. This is the woman. I'm dealing with a woman now. You certainly are. I have issues with this. <laughs> tell me. Tell me. What are your I mean, issues with this now dealing with a woman? Now, so now be clear. I'm not girl. talking to the girl anymore. I'm talking to the woman, Caroline. Got it. Okay, well... I vacillate. So just deal with that. Um, Here's the deal with that. 
I really think that staying in the room and kind of just laying low and being discreet and staying with my husband is the adult woman choice. I understand that she's trying to make it like, oh, I was being like a wily sex kitten, girlish, whatever. Okay, but really, honestly, I would rather think that a woman is the one who is wanting to be in there and passionately having, you know, love affair with her husband in here, right? That's a woman. To me, going out and parading in front of all of these people, being petty, going right out to the dance floor, you know, just just acting like we're not going to leave no matter what happens. To me, that's being a bratty child. That's that's not reading the room. That's not understanding the circumstances. And that's really not fair at all with Spencer. Like you're making him come out here so that you can parade him around like a trophy and rub it in his face to Arthur The whole thing felt childish and petty. It did not feel like, oh, I'm making a stand. I'm showing everyone how adult I am. It felt like quite the opposite to me. I think there is a time and place to decide you're not going to be bullied by other people's expectations and to not hide and and put your light under a bushel. I, I think there is very much a time and place for that. And especially Alex and, and what we know of her. And again, we know shockingly little about Alex's personal life. But if you think back to the first time we meet her and she runs out of the engagement party and she's talking about how she's been put on a train with a destination of her not of her choosing and she's just a pawn in a larger business deal. She doesn't love him. You You do get the sense that... It's only a matter of time before she draws a line in the sand of this line, no further, you know, Ooh, and and, sure. and warranted. But you're on a ship that is in the middle of the ocean and will be for the next three weeks. This is the first night. You have to get through this voyage. And now we know that we're not just dealing with a, a rich ra- railroad tycoon or a, a stockbroker from London. We're dealing with the royal family as as your adversaries. There is there is valor in hiding in your room for three weeks. It is not cowardice. It is caution it's maturity yeah it's wisdom it's it's knowing yes. when you don't parade out in front of everyone because for one thing she very well knew it wouldn't be her in the fist fight All right and that's really shitty to do to someone you don't drag someone out there knowing that if there's a conflict you get to sit back and watch the show She's not willing to be in the conflict. She's not going to be the one. So I'm sorry, what is this exactly? Standing up to Arthur or standing up to your entire bridal group or whomever is sitting there. How exactly are you doing that when it's actually your husband who now is going to have to like either take insults or do whatever? Like, how is that not more childish that you're like hiding behind him? You know, like, that's not being a grown-up, kiddo. Like, it's just not. And I, I feel sorry for her that she doesn't know the difference because I felt like Spencer was feeling it. Like, come on. Like, you're making me come out. Like, you are parading me out here. He's so reluctant to fight. He doesn't want it. He knows. He says to him, you know what I do? You know I kill for a living? I don't want to fight your son. I will kill him. What are you talking about? Right. I will kill you. He deems right. it. He, right. he, he deems he it does. from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yes. 
So I, I agree with you. And by the time she says, Spencer, you don't have to do this. They're already on decks uh, on top deck for a duel. Swords are already being handed out. It's a little too late to say you don't have to do it at that she point. She should have said it when he didnn't want to do the bow tie. She should have said, you don't, we don't have to do this. Let's just get Let her take the dress off of you, and... throw it over the back of the chair like he said it would look better, and just ravish her. Just enjoy the time together. For three weeks, you literally almost just died in a ship previous to that you almost just died in a lion attack like previous to that you almost died in an elephant attack in a car accident why not just kick back and have sex for three enjoy weeks enjoy the ride <laughs> literally and figuratively right like yeah what are you doing i i don't know i yeah. thought this was petty as hell it did not make me like alex and the only one to suffer for all of her actions at the end of the day was spencer which made me feel like Boy, he didn't deserve any of that. I'm going to ask you a question as a woman. Great. Not not necessarily to speak on all <laughs> of womankind, but I, I'm I curious your feeling on this. That. Is there something to Alex wanting Spencer to do this, wanting to fight these people that she feels have wronged her and forced her hand for so long, knowing Al knowing Spencer will do it and will be successful and will put on a fucking show. Is there something to it that she wants him to beat the shit out of Arthur on her behalf? Yeah, sure. It's but it's that comes from an an, an immature side of you. That's the childish side. That's the side who literally wants to stand on the top and yell, "I'm king of the mountain." It's the childish side of you who wants your man to go beat someone up. Your adult version says, "A." If you're such an independent, strong woman, fight your own fucking battles. Show up in that dining room by yourself and have lunch or dinner, what, what have you, with Jennifer, your best friend. Okay? If you want to be so big and so bold and so whatever, do that. If you're not going to do that, and then you're going to tell, like, okay, no, I'm going to drag this guy out here and I'm going to make him be the target of everybody's hate and everything, right? She didn't even really kind of, like, yell back at Arthur exactly. Like, she just, like, was, like, yanking on Spencer the whole time. I found it super immature. That's that's my main thing. I, I think it's the type of thing that middle schoolers want their boyfriend to fight for them. Grown adult people who are married don't try to instigate fist fights for their husband. Now, to be clear, they're doing okay. They are walking away. They are leaving until Arthur decides to call her a whore a couple of times. Twice. It was the second whore. <laughs> so, to be fair, him. they were leaving. They were going. But, you know, listen, Spencer is a Dutton, and Duttons have their code, and Spencer Dutton is not going to abide any woman, I don't think, but certainly not his wife being called a whore in a crowded room in that circumstance twice. But she put them in that position. Yes, I 100% agree with you. knowingly, and that's where I'm like, boo, Alex. I agree with you. It was immature. It was the wrong decision for them to do. I do, I do see why. I do see the angle of, from her point of view, of fuck these guys and their aristocracy. But then she needs to do that, Mike. I agree. I agree. And here's the thing: she was able to do that when she looked at her entire bridal party and ran away from them physically, ran away down the driveway to hop in his car. Like. She is capable of standing up for herself. She could have said, oh, Spencer, carry me to the car so that it looked differently than that. Right. But she did it on her own two legs. She ran away from them. So if you want to, you know, stand up to your family and everything, I totally get the desire to have someone stick up for you and say, like, hey, stop treating me like this. Stop making me do things I don't want to do. 
I get it. I really get it. But but categorizing that as the woman's version and saying me, you know, staying back in the room, reading a book, eating good food, spending time with my husband, you know, having sex, whatever. That's the childish version. Right. Cara Dutton would not have goaded Jacob no. into fighting on her behalf in that situation. And you know what? That's a perfect example. Ask yourself. Would Kara say, let's just stay in the room. Don't freaking worry about what they're all talking about out there. Or would she parade Jacob out there and hope that he will beat someone up? She never would. She would never want that. It's interesting to me that that conversation follows on the heels, though, of the on-deck uh, conversation with Jennifer. The end of it, after where she says, I'm only thinking about the family I'm starting Jennifer says to her, think of your family, think of your standing. Alex, all of London will turn their back on you. I think those are really catalytic words for Alex springing her to do what she does. I think that's a, a, a metaphorical straw that breaks the camel's back. This idea that all of London is going to judge her for not marrying a guy she didn't love and then finding a guy she does love and marrying him, that they're going to turn her... All of London will turn your back on you. That's Think about the weight of that of those words. And we're not talking about anonymous person on the street. When she says all of London it will turn their back on you, we're talking about the heaviest hitters. The mm -hmm. most prominent people in London will turn their back on you, essentially make you a leper. Does that justify her actions? No. But I think you can see where the germs of it are being planted and what's setting her off. Until all of that happens, until that confrontation with her best friend turns so frosty and so terse, I think she really was okay with spending three weeks in hiding in the cabin. I think I, I, I do. I, I think there is an aspect of it, though, where she's just had enough. Is it just Absolutely not. But you can see from her point of view, I think, at least her thought process on how they get to that dinner. And then it fully escalates out of hand. I would imagine she probably doesn't foresee a white glove slapping and swords. Who the fuck brings? I've been on lock cruises. No one brings swords, as far as I know, onto a cruise ship for dueling. I disagree with you. She was engaged to this man. She was within hours or maybe just a day of being married to him. She has grown up in this life and she absolutely knew he would confront him. Confront, but to the point of a duel? It, it's silly to us because who does a duel at all now? Nobody. But of that time, I guess. it's exactly yeah. what happens in Titanic. That's true. Of the time, right? Like, so I don't know, man. It actually seems very predictable that that might happen. And while she can claim she doesn't want anything to happen, what exactly is she doing there if she didn't want anything to happen? She really just wanted a quiet dinner and they ate a quiet dinner and they were all going to walk out of there? No, she didn't want that. She wanted either Arthur to get upset and walk out or something else. She wanted something happen, for sure. She wanted, right, yeah. she was trying to cause so a commotion. What would have sure. been the good thing that would have happened? Like, do you think that there was ever a chance that Arthur, knowing Arthur now, because we saw him in action, and you have to know, knowing her sexually in bed, she slept with Arthur. I'm sorry, she doesn't know him well enough to know what he's going to do? I, I, doubt she she had, I doubt she had slept with Arthur. Uh, Well, she was very experienced when she came to Spencer. She wasn't like, what is that? I got the impression she actually doesn't know Arthur that well. Maybe more, not more than, not more than they grew up in like day school together. Okay, but there's no reputation that comes with Arthur. Sure. There, he's the best swordsman ever. Why does she know stuff like that? She certainly does know stuff about him. For sure. But then 
boom, doesn't know how he's going to respond to any of this. Even his father knew how he's going to respond. He's sitting there saying, keep it under control, keep it under control. And like everyone knew he was going to blow. It was just a show. And you know what? She got way more than she bargained for. Way more than she bargained for. This was adult consequences to childish behavior. And that's a shame. But that's also, though, Alex's MO, though, right? That's the one of the things that we love about her is this reckless spirit she has, like grabbing her suit case and running away from the bridal bus and getting in the convertible car of a man that she doesn't know other than two conversations at a bar right it is let's go out into the safari let's it, it, it is her spirit it's this time though it had dire consequences all of the examples you gave created a situation where her and spencer were on the same team yes this created a situation where she got to be a spectator to Spencer having to take it for the team. And that's wrong. Don't do that to your partner. The more exciting thing would have her to have been jumped in front of Spencer and said, no, your beef is with me. I am the one who embarrassed yeah, you. Yeah, you want to pick up so, the sword herself. So slap me awesome with your white glove. She, right. What if she like picked up the sword and actually started to fight back with him a little bit? And maybe he drops the sword and he say, absolutely says, would have, right? this is he ridiculous. Would... Yeah, but say he does and says, this is ridiculous. And she's like, you're right. It is. This is over. Go away. And you know what? She wins the day. She wins the whole she day. Does. Right. But because he like would have been this. so dishonored had he tried to sword fight her. So, of yeah, I know. Th- that was the right move. But no, she didn't. She. So but let's talk about some things that we did like in the scene. One, when she says, you don't have to do this. He is a great swordsman. Uh, Spencer has, has the best line. Because you can't put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube, he says he's doing this shit on day one. Imagine what he's going to be doing on day 15. Best get it out of the way now. Spencer's not worried about his safety. He's not worried about anything else other than maybe killing this guy accidentally, which I don't think he wants to do because he knows he's going to get in trouble if he does do that. He hasn't proven to be a person who kills people. Right. We know that he's someone who hunts game. He's somebody who protects people, even whether or not they should be on those safaris and be in those areas or not. He was there not to go out and he's not he's not a hitman, you know. I mean, that that's a thing. He says he's a killer, but so far as we know, he's not a hired killer to kill people. You know, there's a fair shot that he doesn't want to kill anybody. I'm also a little surprised given Again, please, let's go back to all that time they spent together and all those demons he talked about. He told her about his PTSD for war, from war, and she put him in a combat position. That's wrong. He shouldn't have done that to him. I have a couple of questions stemming from this whole, this whole plot line and just questions that kind of came to me as I was trying to recover from laughing so hard when <laughs> Arthur gets thrown overboard because I gotta oh tell God. you goddamn I laughed probably for a solid five minutes dude did they use like a springboard because flew <laughs> off the deck like that was amazing I did real hard belly laugh like my big bowl of jelly was just laughing and just shaking I, I was <laughs> laughing really heartily when he went overboard like, <laughs> like and, then, and then the first person to the railing has one of those like white life preservers and i can only think of alex jumping off of the tugboat to get the yes the that was awesome very funny i laughed and i laughed back to that i laughed and i laughed but but it gave me time to ask a couple questions one 
No one comes to Spencer's defense until Jennifer meekly says their version is the true version. But by that point, it's too late because the Earl of Sussex has spoken and Jennifer is not going to overrule the Earl of Sussex as far as going to the brig and being and, and Alex being confined in her quarters. Okay, so no one speaks to that. But this is a ship of worldly people. We have come across numbers of people, including Jennifer, including Alex, and all of the other females in her bridal party. Spencer Dutton is world famous. He is a world famous hunter. The ship captain, Captain Shipley uh, of the Lambridge, knew who Spencer Dutton was by sight. No one on this boat is going to say this celebrity hunter shouldn't be put in the brig. Where did this fame go? Yes, I know he was going against the royal family. And I think ultimately that is the response to all of these questions of why this played out the way this did. If this was any other family, if Arthur was from any other family other than in the peerage, this probably doesn't play out this way. But he is in the peerage. And so he does play out this way, but no one says that's Spencer Dutton, world famous hunter. You know, let let put him in the break. Where is that person from? Uh, very excited, <laughs> very excited parts of England. Okay, so here's Oi, the thing. On that. That's Spencer Dutton, that is. <laughs> I know him. What? I don't know. You're like blimey, all that. I don't even know what you're doing. I, I get I Hunter Weekly, and I know Spencer Dutton. I think yeah. you're going to talk about a dingo in a minute. I wasn't sure. <laughs> I'll take away my baby, and Spencer, Spencer Dutton killed that dingo. All right, he is. All right, all right. Okay, that was for all those who enjoy the, the accents. <laughs> We've had some write-ins about loving Mike's accents, so that was your accent time. Enjoy, yes, everyone. That was Enjoy. Accent Corner. Keep it for yourselves on a recording if you like. I'm going to start doing cameos of bad accents. <laughs> I agree with you very much about, you know, suddenly nobody knows who he is. Like, that's a little hard to believe, especially because we're getting sort of further away from, uh, you know, maybe these little pocket towns. And we're, we're, I mean, we're on a large british ocean liner largest ship in the world we get newspapers and we have you know we have information like we're not like in a little you know small little town somewhere in africa where no one can find anyone like it's not this isn't like that so that was odd from the standpoint of like asking for like witnesses to like step forward in the moment a little bit i'll give this some realism because i do think that some people would be uncomfortable like i might look at you and be like i don't see like did he grab i don't know did he grab the thing did you see did he like you might have that moment where you're like i'm not so sure that i want to step into this situation because i don't really know what's happening and you know the captains of boats they are gods at sea right to to use our overboard <laughs> he's a god at sea right if the captain is asking you something this is like the biggest deal ever to be asking to just like someone step forward you might be hesitant to say anything and again you made a great point societally they're they're not going to go against their own he's an american world famous hunter that's very true the whole thing they're not and he's not a part of their inner circle i mean and there was just a scene in the dining room i mean there this has been a big mess uh, across the board no one's looking to step into this confrontation they're no real salty was. about that revolution <laughs> that too that wasn't that long ago at this point 150 you know? years only that's like a blink that of an eye for that long for uh, an empire that reigned a millennia there you go see so there's still some anger there's still some anger about that but you know generally oh, speaking, i wouldn't stick up for that bloody american oh my god 
plenty of witnesses don't want to step forward, right? No. You're a lawyer. Plenty of people don't trust their own eyes or are unsure of what they actually just saw. It was nighttime. They're outside. Uh, well, I think I think uh, yes, but it was it was people in the schoolyard. There was a there was a fight circle. Go ahead and finish that out, though. What happens at the end when someone comes breaks it up? People scatter to the wind, man. No one steps forward and says, I saw everything that happened. I think the Earl, I I think the Earl pissed in the pool, though, of that whole thing by saying, by calling out what should happen. I think everyone, everyone knows who he is. He's literally in line. He's a, this is a real character. He was the seventh son of, uh, the seventh child of Queen Victoria. This guy being portrayed, the dad, Arthur's dad. He was a real character in the peerage, like a real person that really was in the line of succession so they're not good everyone knows who he is on that ship they're not going to go against him. once he says him to the brig her to her quarters that's what's going to happen in realistic terms but it was still frustrating to watch though because we don't like the earl we like spencer and we like alex so we don't want to see them right we don't want to see any of this um it's all stressful for sure to say the least i you know to kind of finish the this kind of like section of this i i feel like Zero people were sad that that man died. Let's just talk. Can we have like a second for that? Zero people like were like sobbing their eyes out like, I love you. His mother was there and she was shocked at everything that was happening. But like there was not like a big outpouring of grief over Arthur. I think it was really more about the offense of it all. Oh, yeah. It would have been so, so crazy to happen. You just saw someone die. When an Earl turns to Alex and his son has just been hysterically thrown overboard, I mean, he's not laughing. Maybe on the inside he is, but he turns to Alex and says, you're an embarrassment to your family. That's not grief. That's just him embarrassed at what's happened here. Well, dude, you should have been able to control your son more. That's real. I mean, let, let's do some soul searching here. What this if is... the dad had just hidden the white gloves? It would have ended this entire evening. It's true. You can't slap a guy for <laughs> duel if it's not with white gloves. Yeah. At dinner, I would have been like, give me your gloves. Nope. Give, I'm holding them. I'm holding them all night because you cannot be... You cannot be you cannot be trusted with gloves. What if Jennifer had flashed Arthur her boobs at the end of the waltz? Mm. Oh, my God. Here's the thing. Jennifer slid into Alex's spot, no? Yeah. She was 1,000% like trying to be the next Yancey. I think that's exactly what she was doing. That that spot is now open. I think that's exactly what she's doing. It's not open at all now. <laughs> he, he did. He, oh, he did. He fished food. And, and guess who wasn't crying? Jennifer. No, what? Mom and dad weren't crying. <laughs> Lord. Uh. Pour, we should pour one out for Arthur for just, for just a little bit of human respect, right? A dude died. Meh. Yeah, very, very, like like, like a thimble. Oh, my God. Okay. A thimble. Just a thimble. I want to play a a quote, uh, a clip from the end where Spencer is trying to figure out what's about to happen to him when he's talking to the captain of the RMS Majestic. It seems your claim of self-defense has merit. I didn't want to fight him. I damn sure didn't want to kill him. You gave me no other choice. That's been made clear. I'll not notify authorities at your port of call. But this ship sails under a British flag. And a prince in succession has ordered you removed from the vessel. It's fine by me. We will ding you to port. I need my wife. Your wife? You mean the Countess of Sussex? Yes, that's who you mean. You have any proof of this marriage? I have a ring and I have my word. 
The Earl of Sussex has called into question the legality of the marriage. We were married on a ship in international waters by the ship's captain. Do you question your authority to oversee marriages? I do not. But the limits of my authority are met when a member of the royal family commands me to remove a passenger from one of the king's ships and detain another. I suggest you send for her in London. I'm not leaving without her. It's not your decision to make. I think the first thing I would have said was, could you get on the radio and call Captain Shipley, please? Of the ship? He's the captain of, of the, the other he, ship? He's the captain of the ship. His name's Captain Shipley. It's easy to remember. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he trumps him by saying, like, it doesn't matter, even if the other captain said. And so that's fine. I'm, but they needed to say that because every, every single one of us was like, call the other ship, dude. Like, and they were both wearing rings and they both said they got married. Like, what the, what? Come on. What the dick is what you want to say because that is I your catchphrase. What the dick. <laughs> I know you do. That's your phrase. That's your, that's your call. That's your catch. That's your catchphrase. That's my catchphrase. <laughs> I didn't realize. What the dick? <laughs> I, I, that's one impersonation I will not do. So, oh, you're not going to do an impression of me? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to do you saying what the dick. I will not. No? So I can never. Would, would you do like an impression of me generally speaking? Of no. not what the dick? No. I've tried oh, no? southern accents over the time before. and you I have a southern accent? And you regularly roast me for all of the southern accents that I try. So I would never, ever try to do yours. No, ma'am. But it's not a thing that's going to happen. Roast you. Hmm. Every time I do a southern accent, you literally say to me, What was that? <laughs> well, well, I mean, that's that. a pretty it's pretty good roast. And, I mean, you're, you're my best friend, and that's how you respond to it. So. <laughs> Well, okay. That's Just so I, I think I think the person we're talking about here, so you guys can look him up. I'm not going to read his. He's got a very long Wikipedia page. His name was Prince Arthur, Duke of Connaught and Strathern, also the Earl of Sussex. Uh, he was the seventh child and the third son of Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom and uh, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. He served as Governor General of Canada, the tenth since the Canadian Confederation, and the only British prince to do so. So, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, during his time, he was created a royal duke, becoming Duke of Connaught and Stratham, as well as the Earl of Sussex. So you could look at him. His son was also named Alistair Arthur Windsor, second Duke of Connaught and Strathern. Uh, now, the son who Arthur in our show is playing, in fact, was not born until 1914. So they have they have increased his age. He would have only been nine years old at the time this is taking place in in the real world. But the the characters still match. This is who we're dealing with, and, and that's the kind of thing that we can overlook. And, and that's the kind of thing we don't care about. Like we're being too nitpicky. We're not. Let's talk about a couple of things that we did enjoy about the boat. I'm going to say number one. I did enjoy that they had that scene where she comes out in the, in the very beautiful gown and because it, it felt very much like a groom seeing his bride for the first time. And it, it was very lovely. I was getting strong Princess Diana vibes on her hair and the headpiece. There was something about her entire look that really gave me like Princess Diana vibes and the whole like, I don't want to marry this guy. He's not the one I love, blah, 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 all that. Of course, same, same, same. I found it fascinating that they picked the Sussex biz here because because they could have picked any kingdom anywhere, right? Like, it didn't have to be British. It didn't have to be this family at all, this royal family. They could have picked – A, they could have made a fictitious family or they could have picked another country that had royalty. 
But they picked this one. And, you know, at this time right now, you know, uh, Harry and Meghan are the Sussexes and uh, they're in the news constantly. And I kind of think maybe that seeped into Taylor's brain while he was writing this. So the Duke of Sussex is a substantive title, one of several royal dukedoms that have been created twice in the peerage of the United Kingdom. It is a hereditary title of a specific rank of nobility in the British royal family. It takes its name from the historic county of Sussex in England, Sussex. The title of Duke of Sussex was first conferred on November 24th, 1801 upon Prince Augustus Frederick, the sixth son of King George III. The title lapsed in 1843, but was revived in 2018, this is getting to your point, when Queen Elizabeth II and bestowed it on her grandson, Prince Harry, the spare, on May 19th, 2018, upon his marriage to Ms. Meghan Markle, who became the Duchess of Sussex. Duke is the highest of the five ranks in the peerage, standing above the ranks of Marquez, Earl, Viscount, and Baron. So we're actually dealing with the Earl of Sussex here, but it is interesting. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex is a newly or re-newly created title in the peerage. Right. Well, and again, Harry and Meghan are in the news every single day. So timely for them to use that. Yes. Though, I, as far as I know, they don't actually have a show on Paramount Plus. Maybe this is Taylor's way of pitching. Oh, you have no idea how many shows they have going on. There's a whole joke right now. I think it's on South Park about how they're on their privacy tour and they just walk around saying, like, give us our privacy. But they, like, go to different cities, like, give us our privacy. Like, they're on their privacy tour. Super funny. Anyway, I'm not anti-Harry and Meghan. Nobody come for me. I'm just saying I think this that it's interesting that it's, like, very current news and they chose to use this. You liked her dress. I liked her dress. I liked the fact that he had a silly little part in his hair. He felt he looked like such a little oh, boy. I thought it was silly. I liked his hair. I thought he looked like Wyatt Earp. Like, exactly. If you go back and look at Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp, this is what he looked like. All I can think of is I'll Be Your Huckleberry from Tombstone. Love I know it. it's not Wyatt Earp, but I, you know, man, I really wish that, you know, when he says that dress would look best, you know, slung over the back of that chair, I really wish he had taken her up on that. We would have saved ourselves a lot of heartache. I, I'll tell you the thing I liked the little story that he throws up about the fact that he can waltz and relating it back to Karen that she was so bent on them having some culture that she taught them how to waltz in the middle of the lodge room. Now think, think over into Montana, snowy Montana and Kara waltzing Jack and Spencer around the living room while the phonograph plays or or jacob blows on a jug i have no idea but it, i it just it, it struck me as something very sweet and very cara and also connecting you know we have heard about cara we've heard about her relationship cara's relationship with spencer from cara we really haven't heard too much about spencer's relationship with cara from spencer so i thought this was a nice little let's reach across the ocean across the world back home moment and the fact that he said i never thought i'd actually use it but here we are so it was it was great it was a, like a nice little a touch of home moment that i really enjoyed it's incredibly swoony too i mean a man who can can dance uh, can waltz can slow dance anything is highly attractive <laughs> to most women well, i could really shake it down they love me. I'm in the mood. Can you waltz? Are you a waltzer? I know how to waltz. I have not had a lot of practical experience doing it. It doesn't come up often in my life, but no? I understand the concept of waltzing. I, I can do the box. <laughs> I could do the box. And I actually have really good rhythm. For a middle-aged white guy, I have really good rhythm, actually. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Keep advertising that. <laughs> 
let's get to the ending here. I, I really thought, I don't know about you, how did you think this was going to end with, once once Jennifer springs her from her room sweet prison? Which that was so silly and, and, and goosey. Like, how would she, like, when Jennifer sticks her face back into the hallway and, like, looks both ways, I was like, that was the most... She had to commit to the bed. She had to commit to the bed of getting in the room. Of that we were sneaking. That that was the indicator that we were sneaking. Yeah, right the only thing missing was her tippy-toe noise. Like, tick, 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 tick. I really thought they were going to somehow use her big coat because it had that same blonde kind of hair around like around her neck, basically. I really thought somehow they were going to put that coat on her and like hustle her somehow out of there and like really in disguise, like get her off the boat somehow. Um, that was my first thought. My second thought, once we finally get out there and we're out on the deck, I totally thought she was going to dive in. Me too. Her running barefoot through the ship, trying to keep mm-hmm. an eye on where he was and tracking it. I really thought like they were going to try and like lunge for her and she was just going to swan dive into the water off of it. Total overboard. Yeah. That's Katarina Arturo. That's what they yell in overboard. Yeah. Because it's from their little, their fable of the two lovers who meet each other in the ocean. Except for here it was Bozeman. I'll meet you in Bozeman. I love you. I love you. At least they gave us the closure of they do have a meeting point and she does know the address and where it is. So there was something about that that actually gave me a little bit of closure on this mess because this is not where I wanted this couple to be at this point. Subtle point, but I think it's a incredibly good of the show to do and this is where taylor shines and he adds these little details in of all of the things that she could grab in the hurry of leaving the room is she grabs spencer's backpack and she grabs spencer's backpack and shoves the letters that's clear she has spent the night reading again and she shoves them all in the bag and she's running through and they spill onto the deck when she falls if she picks them up she holds them up and she says bozeman i'll meet you in bozeman and so they have a plan i love how precious these are to her the these letters from an aunt she has never met to a man she is married to that she barely knows and these are her lifeblood they are the thing that she cares about the most because she could have picked anything in that room to run out of with with jennifer time was of the essence and she grabbed the backpack and grabbed the letters and she clutches them like they are keeping her alive i love that i love that she has made that connection to this life that she doesn't know anything about it really the 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 mushy heart in me really connected to that i i really really like that that moment a lot well it gives you hope like we know they have a meeting point when that will be you know exactly how this is going to work out we don't know but we know they have a meetup point and before that it was like really how were they going to when she started yelling like where should i go which you know like what am i supposed to be doing like at this point i it, my heart like was going out to her like God, what, what would you do at this point like where are you going? I guess you're hanging out with Jennifer for the rest of this this voyage. But other than that, like, aye, 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 what are you going to do? You know, I think the letters are probably why she doesn't jump in. That makes a lot of sense. I, I really think that when they fell out onto the deck, I think that's what stopped The wind her came from... out of her sails a little bit when they came well, out. Well, the... she would have ruined them. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it was like she was like trying to be the safekeeper for those. And so it was like once that happened on the deck, I felt like her mind like shifted like... 
okay, I can't jump. I have to protect these. Where should I meet you? That's when she started saying that. Right. I love that. And she takes a bit. She looks at them and she's like, Bozeman. Of course, they have she's a like, return I got address. I an idea. I yeah. have an idea. I will meet you in Bozeman. Mm-hmm. So here's my theory. So we talked about the pacing of it. We spent eight episodes. We all thought it was going to go somewhere. I know a lot of people expected them magically to make it back to Montana by the end of this episode. We thought maybe London. We thought the we thought they were going to get to meet her parents because that is a felt like a large moment that was going to have to be dealt with, given how she left Arthur and the bridal party ran away. We we thought maybe they were in Sicily and that's why they were there. That was my theory. But we thought we uh, we thought that the a big epic moment for these two they're not going to make it back to Montana. So let's at the season finale their cliffhanger is mom, dad, this is Spencer. You know, fade to black. That's not happening now. These two now are on their own journey. So why do this? I have a theory. I'm curious where you think this plays out. Why split them up like this? Why end the season with them in this spot apart from each other now? See, I think hmm, we had the pacing wrong the whole time because we thought it was going to be eight episodes. So to be completely fair, there there is no way that we could ever make a really good guess about when they were going to be in Montana because we didn't know about this back half eight episodes until really about halfway through this season. The question mark I have is, did Taylor always know that there was going to be 16 and not eight? And that's why he paced things the way they did? I don't know. I can't answer your question very well because I don't know that they purposely did this. I don't know that this was always the plan from episode one, that by episode eight, they were going to bust them up. Or if it was just a matter of, Oh, now that we have the back half, well, now we need to buy some time. Now we need to tread some water, basically, on this storyline. So we got to break them up. It's got to be like a fake break sitch where we got to put them in different situations. I mean, they could have done this a thousand ways. There could have been like a, oh, you know, a a Three's Company misunderstanding that busted them up for a couple episodes or whatever. You know how this goes. It's just a way to like elongate them getting to there because he must have a set number of episodes of whatever the action is going to be once Spencer gets there. So it's like, to me, it was just, I think, kind of retrofitting, if you didn't know from episode one, to make their relationship and where they have to land in Montana and when they have to get there in the timeline, it has to match up. And they had to kind of stretch it into 16 instead of eight. That's where I'm at with this. That's a very technical, not a very sexy or very story-minded way of doing it, except for just saying they kind of had to put pause on them for a minute so that they can go do something else. Probably Tiona's story for a little bit, a couple episodes. I'm not sure. It does feel like someone is standing next to the camera doing the stretch sign. Mm-hmm. Like if you ever like watch like late night TV shows and like yeah. the producer is like stretch for time, stretch for time. It does feel like that. Here's my theory. Why split them up? Because by splitting them up, there's no longer any obstacles to get Spencer back to the ranch. He can now move unimpeded. He can show up in the season premiere, the season two premiere in Montana or walking down the road in Montana, because if Alex is still with him, then there are adventures to be had, right? Because they are the wacky, almost dying adventure couple. So now him on his own, he can be singularly focused and and just get there. There's no other adventures that we need to pay attention to with Spencer. The only thing next on his list now is Montana. If you keep Alex with, then you have to have keep having these journeys. You have to go to London and meet the family. You have to get on another ship and cross the Atlantic. You have to have 
have the newlyweds in New York finding a train. You have to have the newlyweds on the train for a week crossing the country to get to Montana. You know, it's a whole thing. And then episode, the season, second season is done and they haven't gotten there. Split them up. Alex can, uh, Spencer can just get right to Montana. And at some point in season two, Alex shows up maybe six months pregnant, maybe seven months pregnant. She is waddling down the road. Waddling down the road. You know, and, you know, honey, I'm home and I'm having a baby kind of thing. Right. Meanwhile, Spencer is in the middle of fighting her his family's war. That's mm-hmm. my theory on it. And it also allows for Spencer, uh, for Alex's story to continue to play out. You can still get the uncomfortable London meeting with her parents where she has to. Do you care to get that storyline? I care for this reason. Because you're going, going, going. But I need you to pause and say, hang on a minute. This story is about Montana and a ranch, and we know what modern Yellowstone is like, and we get some of this stuff. Alex, to me, the only reason I am willing to go down her storyline, and hey, you and I didn't even gasp when it turned out there was royalty involved here, partially because there's been a load of people speculating that that's what's been going on here. But neither of us in this podcast were just like, oh my God, did you know she was a countess? And shouldn't we have been like that? But we weren't. We were like, okay. Well, yeah, because I think we assumed she was oh, she was rich English, and that was enough. And honestly, I still feel that way. She's rich English. That's all I really need to know about Alex. I'll, I'll tell you why. The only thing I'm interested in in meeting her parents is okay. Alex or Alex's family represents a cash infusion for her to return to Montana with. Yeah, I was going with the same thing. Like, that's that's my exact thought, too. I, I said that to the people who were in the room when I was watching this. I was like, you know what? I This is the only way they're going to pay those back taxes. There's about six weeks up. left in the year. Uh, yeah. generally, generous, I mean, there's, there's at least four. Generously speaking, we've been in November for a little while now. So let's say there's six weeks left in the year. If if she is efficient and doesn't dawdle a lot with her parents and takes money and gets going back to America, she could be showing up New Year's Eve with a check in hand. That's the only reason I'm interested in possibly seeing Alex in London, because you're right. We need to get Alex to Montana. That's where the story is. That's where her story is. When she says, I'm making a new family, her family, her, when she says, I don't care if, if all of London turns their back on me, the reason why she doesn't care is because her story, she knows is in Montana now. That's where her next chapter is meant to be written. That's certainly where Spencer's next chapter is meant. There is money involved. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm really struggling because because we just, we did 1883 and we've done Yellowstone and both of those don't do this with these side characters. No. We don't go down the path We don't shoot anywhere outside of Montana. (laughs) Well, we don't go to a Dutton's significant other's whole backstory running off to another country with that person or whatever like that's not how this works we stay with the core people we don't even know what happened to thomas in 1883 and he was a core character we didn't go run down his path and go figure out like no no some of these things it's not about the it's not the dutton story if we are going down alex's unless like you said she plays this key role in turning the entire family around which is possible because obviously she she would be the only person unless again Spencer's I, we can assume is living on the lean 
all this time, and he seems to have no problem paying for everything they've done. Right. So I'm kind of curious how much money he has. World famous hunter probably pays well, right? Because of the the I, I mean I the would cost think... of life. Because I'm sure it's not life insurance, so I'm sure he's charging high fees for given the risk of death. There was never any indicator that he was sending money home, which no. would have been a pretty normal thing, to be honest, that that he would have sent a check home maybe every once in a while. I don't know how this works exactly, but I, I agree with you that money has to come in from the outside. And Alex and Spencer, whether it's one or the other or both together or something, seems like the most likely cash infusion to this whole thing. We don't have anyone else on the outside. Spencer. I fear everything your parents fought so hard to build is being ripped from us. You are its only hope. You are our only hope. You must hurry, Spencer. You must hurry. Or there will be nothing left to fight for. That's the letter that Spencer will never get right after that. She crumples yeah. it up, throws it in the field. She has such beautiful handwriting, by the way. She does. I, I, I want to talk about the tone of that letter. There's a desperation in there. That's, that's almost, it's very similar to the letter she wrote that is actually what got him going home. But there is, it's just so repetitive. Like she doesn't know what else to say anymore. And in her voiceover, there's a desperation in there and, and a hopelessness, I think even that wasn't there even previously where there was urgency. By the time you get this, your uncle's probably dead. Your brother is killed. There, there was urgency in the letter that got him going home. But this one was hopeless. This one was desperate. And this one was a letter that will never be seen. It was really heartbreaking, especially knowing how far he is still from home. This is how I think this episode should have ended. Given the setup, we, we get the zoom in on her handwriting on the letter. We get to see the letter as she's finishing voicing it over. The voiceover begins actually holding on Spencer on the dinghy boat after he's gotten uh, beat up a little bit by the, the guys in the boat. Her, vo her voiceover begins with lapping water, shifts to her in Montana. She crumples up the note. She throws it into the ground. She begins a very long walk back to the lot. She had walked a far way away. This episode should have ended with her walking in the one direction, and it should have ended with Spencer coming down the road in the other direction that's how this episode should have ended that's how you end a season finale and begin the threads for the next season you end the story you begin <laughs> the next story but spencer was not coming down the road but only if you know this is the finale like this is where the the entire taylor sheridan universe has a little bit of problem with being given new information when a, when a storyline's already going we are seeing this in Yellowstone currently about like, wait a minute, is Kevin Costner really only sticking around for X amount of time? How does that work with storylines that are already going? This story was already happening. So all of a sudden to be like, okay, wait, you have eight more episodes, stretch, stretch, stretch. It's like, yeah, but now you're hurting the story a lot because they're no longer logical like steps you know because we're we're not taking the normal route that we would have with these characters we're now having to like jog them around you know and, and it just it feels wrong it feels it feels messy it feels like someone's telling you a story and they're like um wait a minute hold on did i already tell you about that guy no wait hold on he comes in later uh okay so this girl she's royalty and you're like okay wait what you know like what are you doing as a finale we gotta gotta just throw that fact out like this isn't a finale it was never meant to be a finale. 
clearly it couldn't have meant to be a finale, right? I mean, I, I don't know what you mean. It was a it's a season finale. I, I, early on in the process, because we found out early on in the season, so he knew before then it was going to be more than the episodes. They rewrote, presumably, let's assume that he originally wrote it for eight and now he has to write for 16. It doesn't change the fact that Spencer should have been walking up the drive at the end of the season, either as a series finale or as a season finale. He needs to be walking up that drive because all of next season has to be Spencer defending his family's legacy against Whitfield and all of the enemies that come. Enough of Spencer being on the fucking road. Spencer needs to be home defending the ranch. Period. End of story. That's it. This is a story about the Duttons of Montana, not about Spencer out in the wild. This whole thing was all prologue to get him home. That's what this entire season was supposed to be about. You need to end the fucking season with him walking up the drive. You just do. I, I, I've watched TV for 40 Five years now. God, makes me feel old. I have, I was raised by TV. I have lived and breathed TV. This is how a TV season is supposed to end with him coming home. You're wasting time at the start of next season by him coming home. They have to get him home soon in the beginning of season two, or else there will be no story of him defending the ranch. He's going to come at the last minute. He ha it has to be the first thing to happen in the beginning of next season. So you should have ended this season with it. Yeah, it did. But I, I feel very strongly about this, but it's also I don't get paid to write the show or any shows. So whatever, I just have to suck it up. But that's how it should have ended. It should have ended with Kara writing that note that no one's going to see walking in one direction and Spencer walking in the other direction, finally coming home and not seeing each other. Let that reunion be on camera at the beginning of season two. Where are we? We're nowhere. We don't know. We don't know where the fuck he is. I, we think he's still in Sicily, right? We think that dinghy was still in Sicily. They hadn't gone that far because it was only one day into the ship. So they brought up the mafia in the previous episodes and we were like, wow, why would you mention Mussolini and the mafia? Why are we bringing Spencer back to, it seems to be Italy again, it's Sicily seems to be, right? I mean, where are we? We don't know. But it looked like it still, like the side of the wall still looked like it. There's been a lot of comparisons between the Godfather and Yellowstone. There's been plenty of conversations about who's the Fredo and who, you know, who who exactly does what here. Is it possible that when we're when we've got, you know, Harrison Ford talking about the family and making sure you do do right by the family and it doesn't matter what's going on with other families, we've got to do right by your family. Does it sound a lot like things we've seen in The Godfather or mafia type movies? It does to me. It's making me wonder if if we are going to have to have any moment in Italy here. Man, I hope not. He needs to get the fuck out of Sicily. I'm tired of it. Do you think that it's weird that they made Harrison Ford actually use the dialogue of the family? Like capital T, capital F, the family in like loads of conversation he's been having. And then they bring up the mafia. Uh, no, no, uh, no. And and I think there's always been... That was very good, Mafia. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spicy meatball. <laughs> and a chinatini, so... Give me my... Like... my Sicilian... No, no, no. Uh, give me the Sicilian rice and put it in my mouth. Oh, my God. Oh, oh mama. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, no, no. You know, obviously the Mafia parallels are clear, but we've got to... Unless it... 
You say that, but these might be some brand new listeners who never ever heard any connections with the mafia or any, and I don't mean connections, but any comparisons to Godfather or mafia. Oh, I was saying general. no to him being in Sicily. He needs to get home. He need unless the mafia is going to drive him John Candy driving Catherine Home Alone style from the airport back to Chicago to Kevin. It, at least, so unless Spencer's going to drive in the back of the mafia van all the way across the ocean to America, Spencer has to get fucking home. The, the season has to start with him home. It just does. It, it, this is not Yellowstone around the world. This is not NCIS where we have, you know, you know Yellowstone Las International. Vegas and Chicago. Right. And- it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Montana. It's, it's, it's fucking Montana. We need to be in Montana. For the love of <laughs> Jeebus, we need to be in Montana. I like how you say Montana like that. It's oh, Montana. I'm here. Oh. <laughs> And we are going to have to leave them because we cannot sit on this for seven hours. I know. I mean, we've already done eight, three minutes on this one story. And this so. is very bad of us. We yes. are bad people. I, I want to talk about the song that RJ and the, and the Holly Orchestra are playing, uh, only because I love jazz music. I'm a big fan of it. I like I like the big band sound and the singers of the 20s. Uh, so the song that that woman is singing, I couldn't find anything that the R, RJ and the Holly Orchestra was a real orchestra, but the song that that lady is singing is a real song. It's called Crazy Blues. It's a song renamed from an originally titled Harlem Blues from 1918. It was written by Perry Bradford. Mammy Smith and her jazz hounds recorded the song Crazy Blues on August 10th, 1920, which was released uh, that year on Oka Records. Although there were many recordings made of songs with blues in the title during this previous decade, this recording of Crazy Blues is considered a landmark as the first significant hit recording in the blues genre ever issued. So it's literally the first blues song. The first official blues song is the one we're hearing in this episode tonight. The 1920 Mammy Smith version of the song was actually used in an episode 10 of season one of Boardwalk Empire way back in 2010. Another mafia connection. Uh, I like this line. There's a change in the ocean, change in the deep blue sea, my baby. I'll tell you folks, there ain't no change in me. My love for that man will always be. Now I can read his letters. I sure can't read his mind. I thought he's loving me. He's leaving all the time. Now I see my poor love was blind. Now I got the crazy blues since my baby went away. I ain't got no time to lose. I must find him today. Aww. Well, that's very sweet. Those are pretty dead on lyrics for old Alex and Spencer. So I agree. Uh, go look up Crazy Blues by Mammy Smith and her <laughs> jazz hounds. <laughs> okay. All right. Now on to <laughs> the jazz hounds. <laughs> that's what the band was called. It, it was, it, it was a little punchy. It's already. not on. It's not the jazz hounds. It's her jazz hounds. They were Mammy well, Smith's course. jazz hounds. All right. We're are. going from 1920s jazz and the mafia. To mortgage and less than 6% interest rates. Let's head to Montana. 
Let me propose something that makes more sense for both of us. Take on a mortgage. Interest rates are below 6%. You have 30 years to pay it back. I haven't got 30 years for anything, Kyle. I'm 78 years old. I'm not going to give my family debt. You're giving them debt either way. You can't sell the calves for what the hay costs. Money is my business. A mortgage is smart, it's safe, and it gives you or your family the luxury of time. Only a banker would consider a mortgage a luxury. We used to do this with a handshake. Sadly, enough handshakes weren't worth the grip, Jake. Now none of them are. Damn, that's a good line Kyle gets in there at the end. Kyle the banker. I like that a lot. Uh, a lot of those handshakes weren't worth their grips, and now none of them are. And Jacob looks offended at that. He makes a whole face. He, he's, he's, he's really upset in this episode. This is a classic theme of, of Dutton's versus progress. It starts in the very first scene when the posse is riding at the town and the hitching posts have been replaced by parking spots. They stop. They remark on the ropes on the tires, like early, like, like early mop versions of like chains on tires for snow and then the hitching posts are gone and now jacob can't get a fucking loan on a handshake uh for his cattle he's got to take a mortgage out and this guy's saying your credit's not worth it because everyone is pissed in the pool too much jacob's having a real time with progress really really messing up his mojo there's a lot in that clip. I'm curious what you think about them confirming that he's 78. The idea of a 30-year mortgage for a proud Dutton who's 78 years old, that's got to be a non-starter, right? Yeah, I would think it's a non-starter. I was shocked he said he was 78. The The line that came to mind was from Your Honor that we love to say all the time is, if ifs were fifths, we'd all be drunk. And that's how I felt like the banker should have said that. Like, if, 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 right? right. If I sell these cattle, if we get this, if, if. And I was like, oh, this is too good. You know, I, I really think that the idea that we really didn't have a handle of their finances hit me hard in this one. I, I didn't really, I assumed they owned the land. I didn't know where we stood on building the, the lodge, basically. I, you know, they were all, they've always talked about in all of Yellowstone how lean some years have been, how horrible, you know, and, and, and uh, or slim the margins are all the time. That's, that's often been discussed, but I didn't know exactly where they were here i mean this is bad and i mean we're we're easing right into the the great depression you know we're we're not far off from that so we know things are getting worse and worse and worse this was eye-opening to me for for the all of the disrespect in the bank and everything too it just felt like yikes and then the henchmen in the bank it's the, it's the world changing right the when he said the 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 line that kicks the most is when he says we used to do this on a handshake and he's talking to Kyle like you and me Kyle used to do this on a handshake and i've never defaulted on a loan i've always paid the loan we used to do this on a handshake that is hard for someone who has lived in that world to now have to you know fill out credit reports and and do loan applications so the world changed while jacob was out uh, in paradise Valley. And 
you know, it's people like Whitfield who are making the rules and staying abreast of what what has to happen, the modernization of the world and banking, especially in the 20s. The 1920s, they were called the Roaring Twenties, not because of the sexy jazz flapper outfits. They're called the Roaring Twenties because the economy, the economy was a skyrocket to the moon. With that came modern financing. And with that came all of the abuses we still have today in the stock market, in in finance markets. Oh, we even heard on when there were on the ship um alex was like don't worry about it we'll put it on credit that meant that like caught my ear i was like what now like oh okay all right like so it's a royal ship we put it on credit right but that's the first time it's the first time you've ever heard a woman in particular have any control over financial choices like that and also the concept of credit you know is, is very shunned by the duttons and everything you know like we're, we, we pay cash we got you know we own everything so it was all like whoa okay all right we're talking about that but the mainline the mainline show yellowstone has has often depicted uh, the yellowstone and, and the duttons in financial distress that the ranch is forever losing money every conversation between jamie and beth for five years when it's not about killing each other is about the poor finances of the Yellowstone and how they are always behind. They are always in the hole. And so I thought lore wise, world building wise, universe, Yellowstone universe lore will building wise. I thought this was interesting because this feels like the start of that, right? This feels like the first real albatross anchor around the Yellowstone's neck. This idea of taking on debt. And he says, I'm not, I'm 78 years old. I have 30 years for nothing. I'm not leaving my family in debt. Kyle, I'm, I'm proud of Kyle here because he does make good points and I, and I'm a financial lawyer. And so I, under, I, I am inclined to agree with him 30 years with good interest rates. If you believe in the business model, if you're saying cattle is your thing and you think it really is a go and for three, you know, for three quarters of the year, you're profitable and it's just surviving through the winter, you believe in it, then a 30-year mortgage at good interest rates is not a bad deal. It's the most offensive thing I, I think Jacob could possibly think of, the idea of saddling the family with debt, because he knows he won't be around to take care of it. That's going to become Jack's problem. That's going to become Jack's children's problem. That's going to become John Dutton's problem. That's going to become Casey Dutton's problem. Maybe this is where it all starts. It is. I, well, that's what I'm saying. It is. I think it, it's exact. We're seeing a point in time this is kind of like the train station reference in last week's episode everyone has always wondered when did the train station start when did they start using it we learned last week it started with banners men rotting in on the wyoming border this show is great because it fills in so much of that yellowstone lore where did the financial troubles begin it didn't begin in the 80s it didn't begin with dan jenkins trying to build a resort a ski resort in paradise valley in season one it began in the 1920s when when cattle prices uh dropped because the war was over and demand uh, plummeted and and everything fell apart and there was a horrible there was a horrible drought and locusts and and all of the feed was gone and we couldn't feed the cattle it started here i love that as a as a world building guy i love getting that kind of lore but i understand jacob's hesitance though the idea of saddling i'm taking out this debt that i'm never going to repay this is going to be a burden around all of my descendants necks. that's a hard thing for a man like jacob a proud man like jacob to swallow and he's not wrong and he's not wrong. And what do we think about the fact that Jacob can't even feel his fingers? He's sitting out on the porch in the winter, squeezing a blanket, trying to get feeling back at his fingers. We need to be worried about 78-year-old Jacob here. 
I did have worries about that. I have neuropathy, and my first thing was like, you can't feel your fingers? Oh, no. Do you have the neuropathy? Like, I was all worried about that, like, right away. I was like, <gasps> because, oh, my Lord, does that mean he's going to fall off a horse? Does that mean, you know, because he can't hold on? Can't hold a gun? We got a can't lot shoot of a gun. problems here. Can't reliably mm-hmm. shoot a gun if you can't squeeze your finger, nope. you know? Uh, I mean, him saying that, damn it, for loving Kara so much, he just wants to go up into a mountains and drink himself until he dies. Uh, that's not a great headspace to be in when you've got a war brewing, Jacob. You can't be you can't be thinking about the greener pastures to go die under. Jesus. Wow. <sighs> you had to feel for him, right? I mean, we've all had financial problems over whatever the course of our lives. And, and, and it can feel so hopeless. You know, when you go to the people who you think, okay, this is a sure surefire thing, going to the bank, the banker's my friend, he knows me, everything's going to be fine. And to get turned away, I mean, there's got to be, where do you go when you're the top guy? You know, who do you ask when there's no one left to ask? This is how you get where you are. We can't talk about the financial problems of the Yellowstone without talking to Whitfield. So we got to get over to that side of the conversation. Uh, Let's start with a little bit of the courtroom scene where uh, I think it's pretty clear the fix is going to be in here. Banner, we know we talked about Chad, who is the lawyer, Chadwick Benton, who is their lawyer. We learn in this in this episode, he is from the law firm that the governor uses as well as Whitfield's company uses. So obviously the the intimation there is that everyone is very cozy. And I think the governor is going to go the way that the law firm uh, representing Banner is going to go. The judge judge admits to having numerous eyewitnesses to the shooting and the charges against Banner, but still lets him out without bail uh, for, for lack of physical evidence and, and equating Jacob Dutton and the Duttons and what they stand for versus Banner and saying the idea that they are the same and they're not flight risks. The whole thing feels very fishy. It feels very sus. And then you have Banner starting a fight in the courtroom. Let's take a listen. Don't look back. Don't speak. Let's go. You know what I'm looking at? Don't speak. I know exactly what you're looking at. I'm looking at a ghost. (laughs) You fucking coward. Trying to settle this in court. I'll show you, coward. I'm guessing the blonde didn't make it. No fighting in this courtroom. I will hold you all in contempt, and you can fight it out in the jail cell. You keep sending boys to do men's work, Dutton. I guess if I was as old as you, I'd send boys too. This don't end in court. It ends in a field in front of your fucking house. If that's where you want to die, I'm more than happy to help you out. I like the idea that the judge is up there with like uh, earmuffs, like his hands over his ears going, I can't hear any of this. I can't hear any of you threatening to kill each other in bloodshed on the lawn. I didn't see you punch that guy. <laughs> and I'm calling you a ghost because, like, I totally did shoot you. Like, right. Yeah, and the sheriff, the, the sheriff of Gallatin County is sitting there and he clearly had to. It's not just an eyewitness, uh, eyewitness testimony. It's a sworn law enforcement testimony that he admitted to attempting to kill him twice. That doesn't count for anything. It's the sheriff saying, I heard this confession. That is probative evidence that this motherfucker should not be released from jail. What are we doing here, Judge Judge McFixins? So yeah, it seems bad. It does seem bad. But also this whole situation with Banner, it feels a lot like what we were just talking about with Spencer and Alex. Like we were on such a straight path, you know, okay, we're gonna get our posse, we're gonna go and get him, we're gonna arrest him, we're gonna go to court. And then now it just feels like, man, circle back. 
because now we're gonna have to like go confront him again and do it like you know what i mean like it's like it's like we got the stretch sign again right. like hang on hang on hang on banner can't go to jail banner can't stay in jail we, we got to keep going we gotta we gotta make some more storylines going on between here before the big blowout that's gonna happen eventually so mm, everybody tread water a little bit so let him out everybody be pissed at each other again start over it's like it's like the director went like places everyone like restart start from the beginning for a show that killed John Dutton so quickly and without a lot of fanfare for everyone else of the core cast to make it out alive this season is kind of crazy and the fact that Banner is still breathing at the end of season one is crazy for how we know Dutton's you know take care of justice that that following this opening scene in the courthouse no one ran out there and shot him that no one went to his house at 418 hancock he he and killed him it's crazy it's it's absolutely dutton's killed this motherfucker they don't at this point he he has to be a dead man i i mean it's jerome flynn right he's a he's a significant actor he's known he's game of thrones guy the, the another connection to game of maybe taylor secretly loves game of thrones and he's just trying to make all the parallels he possibly can but banner is a lot like Bronn actually in mm-hmm. game of thrones he's an unlikable version of Bronn, uh who was kind of a likable rogue but morally bankrupt like banner so maybe that that's why he's still alive obviously they don't want to kill the known actor playing the character right you don't you don't hire him to die early but character wise it's crazy that banner's still alive crazy to me banner ended up being a very afterthought in this episode because this episode was much more focused on whitfield i'm going to play a couple of clips we're going to talk about Whitfield, and then i have a whole thing to say about whitfield and what this character represents that me pulling clips week after week for this podcast has taught me about Whitfield. But let's play this one because this is Whitfield's plan. The idea that we don't need violence, we don't need a gun, we only need a pen to take everything from Jacob Dutton and destroy the man. Let's listen. I want him fucking dead! I want his fucking wife dead. That smug fucking boy, the whole fucking clown. Is this really what you want? You bet your fucking ass that's what I want. Wouldn't you rather be rich? I'm already rich. You have some money. That doesn't make you rich. The Yellowstone will make you rich. True wealth is generational. I could never spend all the money I've made. What I do now ensures that my great-grandchildren can't either. If you think about it, generational wealth is the closest thing a man can have to immortality. When a building has your name on it, that's immortality. And you don't achieve that from prison. If you wrangle some posse to descend upon his home, prison is where they'll send you. Vengeance will never make you money. You must set a goal, then formulate a plan to achieve it. Then you execute it without mercy. Emotion fuels every decision Dutton makes. He loves his land. He loves it. And we will take it from him. You won't need a gun, Banner. We can kill him with this. Whitfield is always willing to give you his plan. He's If you're willing to listen to him, he is always willing to tell you exactly what he's going to do. And just like he says in that clip, he makes a plan and then he fucking executes it without mercy. 
That's who he is. And he will tell you that's who he is. He will tell you every single thing he's going to do. Every single thing in this, everything, every time we've seen him this season, he has said a thing and then he has gone and done the thing. That's an interesting character. It's, it's a very blunt character, but you never have to wonder about Whitfield. There, there's no seconds between the lines going on with him. He says, I'm going to take everything you love with this pen. And he does. He does. This is something that Taylor does very well, actually, is understand the technical side of of how you can, like, take land or, or do different deals like that. Like, you know, mainline Yellowstone is, is filled with, well, we just changed the designation of this land. And it was like, <gasps> but really, it's just like paperwork. There's a lot of paperwork gasping that goes on, really. And, you know, we haven't had a whole ton of that because 1883 really wasn't about that. And so now we're getting into that. This is This is when you're talking about the introductions of things. This is the first time... The Duttons are getting like blindsided by essentially paperwork. I'm a business lawyer and I find this stuff sexy as hell. I love villainy through through paperwork. <laughs> Should we just put that on put that on your business card? Be like Michael Mike, because he had to be like Chad with Chad. Sure. <laughs> Michael Michael quote Mike Caputo. Right. And loves villainy it. through paperwork. That would you do you know what a hit you would be at the at the company parties if you pass that out? Uh, because because this is real. <laughs> the, people don't actually go around shooting people in the streets. They don't actually go up to people on their lawn and and have gunfights. They don't they don't like in the end the in the end of this episode when when Whitfield shows up, everyone draws a gun. Like everyone, I, I think I saw a cow draw a gun. Everyone draws a gun in that scene. That's not how it works in the real world. In the the real world people steal your land with paperwork people block your being able to access land by putting them into you know conservation easements the government comes and takes your land through uh, through takings it, it it paperwork paperwork and the law and the manipulation of it it's everything jacob talked about to Jack in last week's episode at the dinner table about turning government and using government to suppress your enemies is the real world. And it is fascinating. And you, I, I see versions of it all the time. I see hostile takeovers of company. The hostile takeovers aren't done with guns and knives. They're done with stocks and shares and money. Makes me think of uh, like GameStop and like the whole thing with that. It's like, what can you do through just... Stop. Just, just paperwork. Just administrative behind the scenes paperwork. Go watch the Netflix series. It's like a three or four episode series about Bernie Madoff and everything mm -hmm. he did. It's fascinating. He didn't. He didn't pull a gun. It, paperwork. Paperwork and charisma. You know who's got paperwork and charisma and a fucking pen? Donald Whitfield. Uh, for all I was of say Murdaugh. <laughs> Turn into the pop culture review podcast to hear more about the Murdaugh murders. Please. Whitfield is the modern American villain. That is a fascinating character because it's a real character. People like Donald Don Whitfield exist. They exist in the 20s. The look at the Teapot Dome scandal. The those people exist today in 2023. The Whitfields of the world are real and that should terrify you. But to me, it's also why it makes him so compelling because it is real. It is like watch like 
what he's doing is real. That could happen. You should be worried about people. You should be worried about the Whitfields of your world coming into your life. He has a great line. We're going to, we're going to play it at the end of the episode where he says, Kara asks, why? Why are you doing this to us? And he's like, I'm a businessman. I don't have to be decent. That's not part of the definition. I'm here for the business. It's not a, it's not friendship. It's business. Right. You know what? I listened super hard. Do you know what, how, how Whitfield actually said it? He said businessman, just like you. Yeah. I'm a businessman. Businessman. That's what he I'm, said. I'm a businessman. Decency like, doesn't Mike apply had to it me. Right. He had it right. It is businessman. Decency doesn't apply to me. I say that to clients all the time. I'm not Shut here up, to be you your friends. Not. I'm villain, paper, villainy through paperwork. No, I don't actually say that. I'm you actually, I'm, I actually regularly get voted funniest lawyer uh, by clients all the time. <laughs> It's an informal. I mean, there's not like a it's an trophy. Informal vote. It's, a, it's not like a trophy. I don't have a sash. But ooh, we'll have to figure out if we can get you a sash. Anybody who wants to mail a sash to Mike, you can send it to Pod Clubhouse headquarters. Yeah, uh, villainy through business. <laughs> villainy through paperwork. That's what it was on the front, Perfection. and then on the back, funniest lawyer. There you go. It's yeah. We can do that. We can figure that out. Yeah, yeah, you know, true wealth is generational. Everything he's saying is is absolutely true. And Banner's too fucking thick to to get it. This is Whitfield's thing, right? Whitfield wants to see himself as a teacher. He wants to see himself as a mentor. He's a Bond villain. Bond villains always told James Bond and everyone watching the movie what they were going to do because they were thought they were so above it. They thought they were so bulletproof that they could reveal their plans. It's it's a fatal flaw, but it also does show you their genius because you get to see exactly what they're thinking. And it's like, ah, that's pretty crafty. That's pretty devious. Whitfield, which is funny because he played James Bond, uh, Timothy Dalton, he is a mm-hmm. Bond villain. And I think that is fascinating. Now, we have to talk about a very disturbing scene uh, uh, for a second week in a row. And I'm going to play a clip. It's an edited clip, so we're not going to hear any of the bad sounds. But let's just focus on what Whitfield is saying here. Lindy is the one he's talking to. Christy is the one on the bed in this scene. They are the two sex workers uh, from last week who are back this week. I don't get my pleasure from her. I get it from you. From me? Mm. And it could be pleasurable for both of us, but you can't focus on the pain, just the pleasure it gives you. Pleasures in the power. Try it again. And think of the power you have. Hmm? Power, power dynamics. These are real. I know I just spent a whole spiel about people like Whitfield are real. But this thought process, pleasure through dominating someone, is real. These people exist. The, the, the idea of getting your rocks off merely through dominating someone else is such a look into who 
Whitfield is as a character if you didn't understand who he was before this episode. And we talked a lot about how last week's scene in the kitchen with the bending over and the belt was unnecessary, and, and it was unnecessary. All of the gratuitous sex stuff last week was unnecessary, and it was filler, and it didn't help narratively. I think it took away from the show. It was a distraction for the show. I didn't mind this scene narratively because why he's having Lindy do that to Christy and then having it switch and the idea that power can be switched on you just like that and you can be in power and then be the one who's subjugated. That is who Whitfield is. And again, just like telling Banner his plan in all the details and nuance as if he was some sick teacher some some Socratic teacher, you know, teaching his students, he's trying to teach and instruct these girls into seizing your your power by dominating and hurting someone at your under your control. It's fucked up, but you're kidding yourself if you don't think that's real. You're kidding yourself if you think by turning a blind eye to people like Whitfield existing would make them not exist. So I'm taking the position. It's important to understand people like Whitfield are real. They're real in this TV show, obviously. They're real in the real world. People will dominate you this way. People will exert power over you this way. Maybe not with a belt. Maybe not with a sex worker. But they will use emotion and emotional violence and uh, and physical violence and verbal violence to dominate you and subjugate you for nothing else more than their own pleasure, but maybe also for even more horrible motives. Beware of the people like Whitfield. It's like the advice Jacob gives to Kara. If he's too charismatic, he's a bad seed. Beware of people like Whitfield because they are there and they come in all stripes and all character and all costumes. And be warned. Don't just think this is a TV show. People like him exist. That's why I think this scene is narratively helpful to the viewers. So you have no mistake about who Whitfield is. This is not some misunderstood, misunderstood, you know, businessman. This is a monster in human form. So I barely could even listen to that clip, to be honest with you. Like, this is all very triggering for me and very upsetting. This scene changed the audience of who can even watch Yellowstone any of the shows because I feel like I cannot watch any of this with any of my family members at all. I think that there would have been much more um, intellectual, clever, just camera work. And, um, you know, again, we've talked about you could turn the camera away. You could do a bunch of different things that still get your point across this is all too graphic for me. It really, really is. It's it's too graphic. It's too much. I understand that monsters exist, but I didn't sign up to watch this type of thing. It's too much. Like, I care too much about human beings. Like, I just can't. I know. Uh, I know. I know. This is Tiono 2.0. I mean, this is... T- but, this is we like we struggled so much watching that stuff, worse, too. Worse, because this... I, when I say it's worse, and, and I, I know that doesn't make sense exactly... But it's worse that he's portraying this because when it comes to the Tiona storyline, that's supposed to be historically accurate, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very important to Sheridan to tell these people's stories. Now, if there is some narrative here where someone's going to tell me that he's trying to show what sex workers go through 
and what they sacrifice and what they do in order to make a living. And that's why he chose this vehicle because he could have abused animals. He could have had a wife and abused her. He could have had a whole lot of different scenarios, but they chose to do it this way. I feel like we deserve to know why. And I don't mean why narratively. I mean, I I really want an answer as to like, what are we doing? What What are we turning the show into? I don't want I don't need to belabor the point because we've been talking for a long time. And really, this really, really upset me. I don't like this choice. I think that they could have shown him being a very cutthroat businessman. It's very Games of thrones again. Well, are we going to talk about that? Because yeah, this because is serious it, about this part to me is serious about like lifting storylines. I think that's really questionable. I mean, this is a very specific storyline that already occurred in another series. And so I, to me, I'm like, what are you doing? Why? Why are we doing this? Like, it seems like too much to me. And I don't. I'm not going to shut you down so you can talk about it as much as you want. But no, no. I, I mean, I said what I said. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't like this choice. And I get that you're giving you're giving the reason behind why we had to understand this aspect of his personality. And I'm saying there was other ways to show this aspect of his personality to me. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And 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 two weeks in a row, it's it it's all very hard to take after a full season of everything Tiona went through. Yeah. And and just emotionally, we're just tired. Just don't know what we're we're doing. tired by eight. So choices wise. This is this is the choice. We talked at the beginning about questions on pacing and choices. This is what we're talking about with the we choices. Spent so long on this in a season finale. That is the other thing that pisses me off. We have Kara Dutton, let me have a whole afternoon with her. Let me have a whole afternoon with Jacob. He's 78 years old. He's got moments left on this earth. Let's spend time with them over this garbage, absolute garbage that I would never want to watch. I don't want to watch people getting hurt or hurting each other like like this. And, if you, and, and you know, if, I guess people could say, but you don't have a problem with a gunfight or whatever like that. No, I don't, because there's something psychological and emotional and really disgusting about this that's happening. And if this is where Taylor wants to go with these types of characters, this is a villain like nothing we've seen in modern day Yellowstone. So what is going on? Like, why make him this vile? It's so unnecessary. At the end of the day, the pen did get it done. So why? Well, let's get there because he talks to Banner in the earlier clip we played about how make a plan and then execute it without mercy. And we see that in this episode because this is this is how the episode ends. Let's take a listen. Your line of work appears to focus your attention on the season. Carving in the spring, branding in the summer, selling in the fall and then surviving the winter. The future receives all my focus. Once a mine is producing, I think no more of it. I seek the next. You know they expect 130,000 visitors in the park this year? Can you imagine? In 30 years, cattle will not be the largest industry in Montana, neither will mining. Can you guess what it will be? I don't care what it will be. You should. It'll have a profound effect on your family. Tourism. More Americans live in cities than the country for the first time in this nation's existence. And they will come by the millions to experience this majestic place. And they won't want to leave. 
Texas, as its oil boom, our boom will be land. And as the two largest landowners in the state, we stand to benefit handsomely. I was looking over the public records. You're one of very few ranches who owns his land with no loan. Impressive. Especially with the collapse of the market since the war ended. I commend you, sir. The point is, that first payment has not been made. So, I took the liberty of making it for you. As I'm sure you're aware, if I'm not repaid by the end of the year, the deed reverts to me. We have done no harm to you. Why would you do this to us? Because I can. I'm a businessman. The word decent doesn't apply to me. Donald Whatfield never shuts the fuck up. That's one of the things I take away from his character. I think that you you might be a little mad at him because of how upset he's making me. <laughs> yes, but but I I pull clips for all the podcasts we do. All of them. Mm-hmm. It, it's something I like. I think it enhances and focuses our discussion. I, I think it's an important part to pull out and and make connections from the beginning of an episode to the end of an episode and put them all together. I think it helps the listener. I think it helps people digest what they've seen. I spend a lot of time listening to episodes. I've been watching them. I spend a lot of time with my headsets on listening to clips and pulling them, editing them down. I don't know if you realize this. Almost every clip we play is a minute or less. Almost always, the clip is almost never longer than 90 seconds, because that's a very long clip to pull from a TV show for copyright reasons. And, and you know, we rely on fair use because we're discussing it. Um, but it, it's very long. But also for people listening, they watch the show. They don't necessarily want to listen to a five-minute clip of an episode. All of this is to say, you'd be shocked how much a character rarely speaks for more than a minute at a time. A minute of dialogue roughly translates into one full page of dialogue in a script. That That's the, the traditional conversion rate is one page of script equals one minute of screen time. So when I'm pulling clips, I like to pick a minute as like a rough estimate of I, I want to get it. I want to get the meaty part into that minute. And almost always never a problem. It usually comes in at f- between 50 seconds and maybe one, 105, and I can I can cut time here or there. For every show, not just Yellowstone, for every show I pull clips for, almost always a character says the thing that they want to say in a meaty way within a minute. Every fucking Whitfield clip goes on for two, three, four minutes. The motherfucker never shuts up. And it's not making one cohesive point. He's just rambling from point to point and back again. He never stops talking editing his clips are a nightmare that clip i just played was like a three plus minute clip of him talking that i had to cut down and i had to listen to and pull out the meaty parts to get it down to and still came into about a minute 20 i think maybe a little minute 25 why am i bringing this up because as a character he loves to hear himself talk that's why he never fucking shuts up lindy and christy don't give a fuck about what you have to say doesn't give a fuck about what you have to say. He just wants to drink and kill. That's all. That's all Banner wants to do. No one cares, Whitfield. You're just talking because you like to hear your voice talk. Some people might say that about me. (laughs) But he never shuts up. He just 
talks and, and, and it hit me when I was pulling audio for this, how much work I have to do to edit down his clips <laughs> because he never shuts up. That is who Donald Whitfield <laughs> is. He bloviates. I hope at the beginning of this episode, since you and I have watched these on screeners and, and so we don't actually know what you guys are going to see all the time. And sometimes things are re-edited and sometimes things are changed from, from what we see to what you guys see. I'm very curious what type of warnings might be on this episode. If it's simply going to be a, like a nudity warning or are they going to, are they going to actually call this stuff more abuse than just nudity like that we're not witnessing nudity we're we're witnessing psychological emotional and physical abuse on the screen for entertainment that's something i hate and i stay away from as much as possible i don't think it's cool to do that for entertainment i really think they could have gotten the point across about who whitfield was as a person and his personality and even how how, how cruel of a person he can be without making the choices they've made for him. And I, and I kind of think that what you're saying about how he's such a windbag and he says so much, I kind of wonder if that's because they're struggling to find his voice and in that they're, they're taking a lot of these risks that they don't do with other characters. They're, they're putting him in scenes and situations they don't do with other characters. They're making him have these extended dialogues that few other characters are having on television at all. <laughs> right. Right. So it's like, it's like maybe they don't have their arms around him as a person. Like they want to get the point across of who he is and how he behaves and how he thinks in every other character. I mean, Kara can be concise, man. She can say three words and you get her, but there's something about Whitfield that is just undefined or just not well like, like I said, the, the, it seems like they don't have their arms around him of, of how to show who he is without these bombastic, long, ridiculous speeches or these horrible scenes. Like, I'm like, this character is a complete loss for me. Like, I hate him, but I don't hate him like a villain. I hate him like, ah, just do better on this guy, you know, like nail him down better. And don't think you have to do these really radical, outlandish things for us to get it. We're a smart audience. We are, you know. I know every single person who's listening is smart, is paying attention, cares about the characters. We don't need someone like him to be on this show and act like this because it's it's like it's it's so unrefined as a character. Does, am I making sense? Like, like an editor should have come in and said, like, ah, take out, like, 20 of those sentences and dial back that scene. Yeah. Like, you know, cut it in a different way. You can have the same effect. We can get it, what's going on. But it's like, it's, it's like there's no careful cut. You said it very well at the beginning. It's like someone is taking a hatchet to these people instead of a scalpel. And that's what the sex worker scenes needed is, like, a more careful, thoughtful shooting and his dialogue it needs to be condensed the episode came in at one hour seven minutes and 34 seconds they probably could have got it at 104 and and done it a little bit different probably got uh, it on at one <laughs> it'd been fine <laughs> all right let's go from one sad thing to another sad thing but sad in a different way there's not there we have three topics left to talk about guys and they're all sad and there's nothing good we've talked about all the happy parts if you could fucking believe it from this episode oh goodness and you guys listen we're gonna do our best to try to find 
you know, all the good. Is Timothy Dalton killing it as a complete fucking asshole that I hate and would never want to ever cross paths? He's amazing. He's selling it. He scares the shit out of me. There's not one acting performance in this episode. And again, I overall, I like this episode. I I, I know we have, we we have been, I, I think we have, been so critical of it because one we had really high expectations and two we have an idea of what we think we what we need out of a finale but three i think it's because we're so invested in the show and in the story they're telling that when it doesn't feel right we kind of cock our heads to the side and and go hmm and we're and again we're not trying to be like these super critical you know watchers guess we're not we are not really we enjoy 90% of the stuff that's happening. But you're right. I mean, if I'm going to cock my head to the side, I have to talk about it because this is partially like therapeutic for both of us, right? And if you guys really want to hear therapy sessions, go listen to Kevin Can F Himself. That's a podcast Mike and I did. Holy smokes. I think we 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 logged hours of therapy <laughs> time with each other trying to work through demons. Man, I think I I cried a lot in that podcast. I cried too. We cried. I it was it was a it was a cathartic show. I appreciate the authenticity, and I appreciate that there's always going to be this grittiness that that goes in with these shows. And a lot of times, I can take like a lot of it, but there's certain stuff when it comes to just like hurting human spirits and like like ripping their souls apart and stuff. That for me, uh, and I think that we're going to to some storylines here that really comes to the to the heart of individual people where where they are like their actual souls their beings and um so for that even though these are sad at least i felt like they were relatable and like heartfelt there was something to them where there was they were trying to have these experiences that we would understand on some level as opposed to just the shock and awe of some of the other scenes i can't do it then what the hell am i here for Well, my aunt never had children. You saying she got no purpose? She raised me. Raised my father. Nursed my uncle back to life. You too. No telling how many lives she nursed away from death during the war. I look at my aunt and all I see is purpose. Word you're looking for is destiny. And if you want to give God a good laugh, you tell him what you think your destiny is. We take what life gives us. It's all we can do. The storyline of Elizabeth losing her baby, while it completely destroyed our theory that Elizabeth would have a baby that that Spencer would end up raising in Jack's untimely death, probably seems unlikely now. That aside, I think they handled this storyline beautifully. They didn't devote a, a lot of time to it. I think they did a wonderful job with it. I think they really increased the character of Jack in a mature way for how he comes to Elizabeth's aid emotionally in this scene. I was really touched by it. That's a heavily edited scene. I had to cut a lot of it out because he has some funny stuff about destiny and all the things that had to go wrong and her bad taste in men for her to wind up with him. But but I think I got the meat of it, though. And the idea of we have to just deal with what life gives us at the end there, I think, is the big takeaway that we should all apply to our lives because you're just you're tilting at windmills otherwise. 
See, and I think that this scene and this storyline was done with so much thoughtfulness and care because they did cut the camera away. They didn't allow the scene to get too triggering for any family or any person who has gone through a miscarriage. They didn't get overly graphic about it. They could have. Why not? They could meet the same graphic level as the the beating of the sex worker. It could be that level, but they they took it with so much more care. And I appreciated that because I I felt like they did that for audience members. Like I think they did that in order to be thoughtful and careful about not stomping all over people's feelings and making them feel like turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. I just can't even watch the show anymore. I, I think that that was very kind. And even I, I think that they were being so kind that when the doctor actually explained what happened, it was a little jarring that the one sentence he used, I don't know if you're going to use the clip or not. I'm not. I mean... It, but it, the way it, that he said that she flushed the baby, the way that the, the, that line was... Blunt. It It was so blunt and it sounded so harsh because... They had taken a lot of care with the rest of the story of uh, surrounding that. They they had been very tender about the whole thing and very cautious about the whole thing. And I I really appreciated that. I, I hope for anybody who's gone through this and they're going to watch this, I hope that they feel like this was, was done more carefully than, you know, someone who may have, have had experiences that, you know, the Whitfield scene might bring up stuff for them. That, to me, wasn't done carefully and thoughtfully. This was. Um, So I give them a lot of credit for how this was written and a lot of maturity out of Elizabeth and Jack. I loved that Jack was so good about using Kara as the example because Kara is now like her role model. It's who she wants to grow up to be. And, and, you know, seeing like, hey, you have you have a whole lot of things you can do in your life that uh, that's that's not about, you know, having kids or having your own children, bearing your own children. You have purpose like that. You know, you are not you are not just a baby carrier. Right. That's what I was seizing on. Remember women in women through forever through today, but all the more women in the 1920s, women, you know, in the in the 1880s, the expectation of them just being a baby maker and just being a baby carrier and, and, and this incubating oven. And without that, what purpose do I have? This felt so relatable. Not the specific, if I can't have babies, what purpose do I have? I can't relate to that. I understand it. I'm sympathetic to it. And I think they did an amazing job expressing that. But the larger point of this thing I always counted on being able to do, I can't do. And so now what's my purpose? What adult out there hasn't had that feeling at some point? Who hasn't laid in bed when they feel like they just can't get anything right? Just just no matter what they do, they just don't understand why they're even here. She says, why am I even here? And and I love Jack's response and I love bringing Kara into it and using her as an example for for purpose is what you make it. I think that's a line he says. Purpose is what you choose, kind of like this destiny. I love conversations about purpose. I love conversations about destiny and fate and what are you supposed to do versus what you are doing. And I think they handled it in a really nuanced way. I think they handled it in a really thought-provoking way. I like the idea that we're saying Elizabeth is not her entire identity is not wrapped up in being being able to have babies that is important for anyone from any era to understand your purpose is not wrapped up in being able to give birth to children 
your worth as a human, your purpose as a human, your purpose as a spouse and as a partner in this world is not tied to your ability or inability to have children. It is not. And if someone is saying it is, they're wrong. You are more than the sum of your body parts and your body's functions. No, I agree. And I, I really kind of, like I said, when when I mentioned the fact that you and I watch this in screeners, I'm actually kind of curious if they are going to put any type of warning on this about some of these other topics. You know, like I'm kind of curious if does does miscarrying, you know, come with any type of warning for our viewer or not? Or is that like, nah, some of this stuff, because I guess, you know, give them credit that it feels like real life. You know, it has a way of penetrating your skin and being like, this isn't just TV. This really happens. And this is how people really feel. How do we grapple with that? And how do we kind of protect each other a little bit on what we're seeing? How do we talk it through a little bit? And that's definitely something that Mike and I, you know, we encourage. We've had lots of listeners who will write in and tell us stuff, especially during that Kevin can F himself. Where, where they had experiences like this. And so, you know, if, if that's something that you guys want to do, write into us, feel free to do that because it's something that Mike and I are kind of used to, right? People saying like, yeah, that, that yeah. happened to me and this is how I felt about it. And, you know, this is sort of how we get it all out, if you will. I, I mean, we use this my, these microphones as our own catharsis and therapy. We hope that you guys get some value out of it too. And clearly we want to hear your stories too. You know, we're, we're, it's, not a, it's not really a one-way street. Um, no, so. no. We got to talk about Zane. This was this was an unexpected as wow. hard as this storyline was. Yeah. Zane has been a favorite of mine. This this down low, not a lot of attention paid to him, but just a good honest cowboy doing good honest things, being a stand-up guy on the ranch, just a rock, a rock of dependency and reliability. And so I was surprised after eight after seven episodes getting this glimpse into his private life. I didn't realize he had a wife. I mean when everyone's racing to the barn to go meet their sweethearts, he's the one who says, I'm not racing to the barn, like, you know, like, right. but he's got a wife. He's got two little kids. He must not see them very frequently at all. You know, he's mm-hmm. working so hard, sending money back to them, presumably now, but he's not seeing them. So we get to meet his wife and his children and, and she is smart and the kids are inquisitive and they are just oh, the cutest. I loved all of them. I oh loved all gosh. of it. I immediately I wanted to be in this family. Wife. Yeah, I fell in love with his wife immediately. She was so smart, so just like uh, she just met him, you know, toe to toe with any comment he had to say or anything. And I, I love women like that. I, I I absolutely love women characters who have a lot of depth and and interest. And I was I was absolutely drawn into their family right away immediately the I conversation about the radio tower this happening no <laughs> yeah she was so smart when she was like radio waves and all this stuff and i was like you kind of you kind of already knew as soon as the kid asked and and you knew zane wasn't gonna know but you knew the mom was gonna know <laughs> and it right. was like oh that i mean look at how well we understood that character in two seconds you know like we we got it but man i didn't expect what was gonna happen and this was really hard and you felt the love around that table and then when they're in the shower and they're just enjoying each other oh my god the mom's sticking her head out and and being like you know trying to talk to her and man of course when that little girl's talking about a monster in her window i'm like clive it's freaking clive i know it's whitfield's got spies everywhere he's got the spies Uh, at the bank he's got spies in zane's window god so scary but yeah before we get into a big shout out to joy osmansky who plays alice chow zane's wife here i don't know how often we're going to see her how much more we're going to see her in the show but she was a breath of fresh air i hope i hope the audience reaction is as great as ours was and they include her more going forward hey heads up 
doesn't Zane have to bring those kids back to the ranch? Assuming, assuming, assuming Zane is still alive, he's bleeding a lot and not moving. That last kick, it was the last kick to the head by that one guy that I was like, oh no. Okay, but still, now we've got a miscarriage and we've got apparently maybe orphans, but at least somewhat motherless at this point, two kids, maybe, maybe orphans completely. I mean, how do those two kids not end up on the ranch? For sure. I mean, the first the first of many orphans that will come through the ranch. They, you know, that son may eventually wear the brand the same way Rip did another orphan uh, who had to come to, who had to come to live at the ranch. Let, let's talk about what happens here, because I think a lot of people maybe are like, what is going on in this scene? I don't understand right. what is happening. They use some terminology that we don't use in modern day. We don't use in modern day because thankfully these laws have been stricken in most places. I think they actually still maybe exist technically on the books in some states. Miscegenation is the word. Montana has a law on the books in 1909. It's called the Anti-Miscegenation Act of 1909. Essentially, and it boils down to white people were banned and prohibited from marrying people of color, people from Chinese descent, and people from Japanese descent. Explicitly banned and barred made illegal to marry them. The idea of interracial marriage was considered an abomination. It was considered a mixing of blood in a negative way when that peace officer, and I I laugh uh, sadly and ironically when he calls himself a peace officer, refers to those children as mongrel children. That is the term that people used to use. That law, it was actually upheld by the Montana Supreme Court in 1942. It comes on the books in 1909. This is happening in 1923. That law is upheld by the Montana Supreme Court in 1942. It's not repealed until 1953. That law was only repealed 70 years ago. That is shocking to me. That law was a law until 1953, saying these couldn't happen. And do you know who's not included in that law? This is the hypocrisy of politicians and and the law. The bill took so long, it kept being introduced into the Montana legislature um, because every time it was introduced, it was being introduced, including Native Americans. And so many of the legislators in Montana had married Native Americans or had Native American family members at that time. And so there was a lot of opposition to passing the bill because Because, sure, don't marry black people, don't marry Asians, but we got to be able to marry Native Americans because we've already done it. So it wasn't until they finally omitted Native Americans from the anti-miscegenation bill that it was able to pass. So marrying a Native American was allowed under Montana's law, but this marriage that Zane has to Alice Chow, not allowed. The last state to repeal the law against interracial marriage was Alabama. Oh, okay. In guess what year? 1992. 2000. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember from law school. We learn you learn about miscegenation. It's a word that I haven't haven't thought about since law school, and I remember I remember covering that and thinking it was shocking to me uh, in my 20s hearing about such a thing that that existed. Uh, in 2000, I'm in law school in 2002. So it was actually a, a, a new thing having been finally repealed in Alabama, I guess. Crazy. Uh, it, it's crazy. Guys, this is where the show shines. Like the residential schools, these things from our past that we don't want to look at or don't even know existed. I we think a lot of people know. Most people don't even know. This word miscegenation, like I, most people don't know that word. This, this is going to be a, what is that word? But this is real. This is not Taylor Sheridan being fucked in the head. This is real <laughs> history. This is real history. 
Yeah. That might be left over from a previous conversation. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, funny. Oh. Well, no, I mean, but, but like, what is this law? You're beating him up because he married an Asian woman? Like, no, it, it's a real thing. It's a real yeah. thing. It was terrible. It was, it was awful terrible. to watch. It was awful, awful to watch. And as, as quickly as we fell in love with Alice, and, and I, I, I absolutely did. To see her screaming in the the sheriff car or whatever, the peace officer's car, the law enforcement's car, it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking to watch this happen. And um, and again, though, I, I mean, when we're talking about and like, the, the kids back watching half, it, the kids on the porch watching it oh, yeah, made it all worse. The boy was like, Dad, like, I mean, it was it was so terrible. This is one of the things that a little bit worked in terms of opening new storylines because we do have these two little right. kids. This is a new this is how you introduce a new story at yes. the end of a season for the next yes. season. So that's something I need to draw attention to that they that they 100% got right is like okay so you brought up something you this happened and then now you have these two little kids what's going to happen with them? Okay, now we can see back half, you know, these last eight episodes, these kids got to come into play. So now that's exciting as people who are watching to be like, okay, okay, so here's something to put on the board for like when we come back to start looking at what happened to these kiddos. My hope is we don't have a cafe scene (laughs) where it's like the last time we saw those kids, they were standing on the porch and we never saw them again. I don't want that to happen. I certainly hope that they pick up with what happened here surely the duns are going to come looking for zane right because he's not going to show back up when he's supposed to right i mean he was supposed to be he had until the next morning and they're going to find these two little kids right he had until the next morning to to off from the ranch so someone's going to be coming but then looking that's, around. that's got to be the timeline like right like but then how does that get you to jump ahead right away i don't really know unless these kids are already at the ranch and they're already settled in when spencer comes but I mean, there's this there's this really time sensitive nature of a man on the porch bleeding out and two kids standing there, and it's supposed to be the season finale. How are you going to time jump with a man bleeding on the porch? You know, like how, how does this work? Uh, just to be clear on the miscegenation laws, the United States Supreme Court ruled miscegenation laws, anti-miscegenation laws, unconstitutional in 1967 in Loving v. Virginia. The, it took until 2000 for Alabama to be the last state to actually formally repeal it. So it had been unconstitutional to enforce that law since 1967, in case anyone was like, oh, but you, you missed the Supreme Court case. But the fact that it still stayed on the state books for another 33 years after it was ruled unconstitutional says a whole lot about racial relationships in this country crazy uh yeah this is a great this was a great storyline one because we all love zane we hope that he's okay that he gets to return to the ranch with the two kids but yeah for sure duttons are coming to look for zane and they're going to find his kids and we've got new people living at the yellowstone because of course kyra and jacob are going to take them in these are not two people who are going to turn Jack away Elizabeth are going to take them in oh, all of a sudden she's got a she's, she's got, got a purpose. she's got her purpose like yeah. be raising other people one second later yeah i mean they played it all out for us i love it i love it it was great great and yeah so these, these were some really shiny moments say i love it it was great <laughs> well as a storyline as, as a narrative storyline <laughs> so i want to bring up again the casual nudity 
in the shower. She, then we see Alice Mount Zane in bed, and she's just naked. This is all very HBO. And again, I'm not prudish. And 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 we got to see a loving couple who hadn't seen each other probably in a while. They were enjoying each other, and I'm all for that. I'm just pointing out that this is a shift in the Yellowstone shows. I, I mean, it's really not a shift in the show, right? Because they showed us Jack and Elizabeth going back to what episode was that? Three, four? And so it's not new with the nudity, but every episode, it seems more and more there's just casual nudity in the episode. This is increasingly not a show you can watch with your kids and your grandma. Well, but here's the thing, Mike. If you start at 1883... You wouldn't think this is a show I can't watch with my kids, right? You're, you start to watch it. And is it is it gritty and grueling and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. But you could almost, I mean, as like a homeschool teacher, you could almost be like, yeah, look at what it's like to have to be on a wagon. Look how dangerous it is. Like you could like talk about stuff, right? But if you watch this from from 1883 all the way through to modern Yellowstone, let's say all the episodes are out, right? 1923, I mean, depending on what they're going to do with the next couple of prequels, is going to be like a blaring look at Total all the shift. nudity that we are doing here and look at all the not just nudity because it's it's some of it's tasteful but again some of it's not why you know like she could have had the covers on or she could have been wearing mm-hmm. lingerie or whatever like we've all watched plenty of television we don't see this much nudity but where's the butts and the dicks, right? Like, Where are the butts that? and the dicks? So Why people, are we not balancing this out? People will counter this and say, you know, nudity in Europe is just commonplace. People don't make a thing about it. You watch Italian television, French television, English television. There are just there. There's just nudity everywhere. And though I don't think it's a lot of penises, I think it's actually mostly breasts that they're talking about, which is what we're getting here. Uh, so Americans are prudish. I don't think it's that. Again, and if it narratively it serves the story, I'm all for it. It's the same thing with cursing. I think it's I think when someone is upset on a network show and has to say, gosh darn, I think that's silly. Real okay. adults curse when they are upset, and so they should be allowed to do that. And people clearly have sex. And narratively, if that helps it along, fine. But if you're just doing it just because you want to see a breast or you want to see an ass, I don't know. It feels like that becomes a distraction to the narrative. And we had this whole discussion last week. I don't want to retread it. You know, the fact that we are bringing it up every episode because something about it is jarring to us. The something about it that they didn't just pull the blanket of the cover up like this is a private moment between these two. I didn't need to see Zane and Alice reconnect that way. Uh, you know, it may, it may was it was the drive we home. We didn't need to see her completely new. Like was it to drive home that Clive was intruding upon it? And so that's why maybe maybe that supports it. I don't know. I don't know. And clearly this feels like a conversation we're going to continue to have. I hope not, man. But we're just going to have to resign to the fact that I guess they have shifted the the tone of the show. I guess they're okay with that. We're in 20s. Well, they're willing to lose. Well, and I did think about that. I really did stop and think. Are they trying to make some sort of commentary on women's sexuality and that they're more free with their bodies? Because certainly 1920s did represent a time. Women cut their hair. Women wore short skirts, you know, shorter dresses. I think you would definitely hear that as a defense of it for sure. I do understand that and I do get it. While Alice and, and some of our characters definitely seem to be owning their sexuality i mean she's on top of him right like Mm -hmm. we should look at that dynamic and think like okay well then all right like check this out like women are owning their sexuality more during this time that's all good and if that's what we're going for okay fine but 
also go ahead and pull the camera back. Let's let's see his ass. Let's see his dick. Like, I mean, why, what are you doing? You know, if, if you're making a commentary on sexuality, go ahead and make it across the board. I agree. You're for seeing butts and dicks. You don't care. I'm an equal offender nudity guy. So if you're going to show me boobs, I fully expect that I should have to see dicks, though, because that is fair. And I thought we were through this. I thought we had already gone through this, too. With like Game a of Thrones shows dicks, Taylor. Game of but Thrones thought, shows dicks all the time. we had been through this where people had started to say, like, hey, if you're going to be showing this much nudity on women, you've got you've to do better. Like, it's 2023. You've got to even this out. Like, I really thought we had gotten there in entertainment, yeah. you know, a little bit more, especially with these shows that try to show – you know, supposedly all this realism and all this authentic and all this. Well, authentically, are the men never naked? I mean, come on. What's going on? How come the women only are have to change their clothes ever or whatever? You know, come on. I agree. I you, You're appreciative to the choir here. Before we move off of them and get to uh, Tiona and the gang, uh, I, I just want to circle back to the conversation at dinner in the Zane Alice household about Montana and radio stations. Uh, the first radio station in Montana actually was licensed in May of 1922. KDTS went on the air. 49 radio broadcasting stations were already in operation in the United States before Montana's first licensed station took to the air on May 19th of 1922. However, KDTS, based out of Great Falls, only remained on the air for 18 months. O.S. Warden, who was the station owner and the publisher of the Great Falls Tribune, concluded at the time that Central Montana was just not yet ready for local radio. The next station that went on the air was KFBB from Great Falls, was also established in 1922. I think it was October 1922. That went on to have a lot more success and and kept growing in its wattage and its power and stayed on the air for, for years, I think. I think for maybe 10, 20 years. They had already had a radio station by 1923. But again, I like the fact that they're talking about this new technology, which was new technology when you were listening to uh kdts you were getting news and the and the occasional classical music selection and so am i am i nitpicking that it was 1922 instead of 1923 no because i like they're putting historical facts into the show i just want to be on the record that certain things are okay if they're not exactly correct because i like the overall arching theme of including this new technology that really would go on to change the world what they're talking about at dinner the idea that you're neighbors from all over the state can be hearing the same thing at the same time we don't appreciate the power of communication and television and the internet and radio i think it's really lost on us because we are all have grown up with it for so long but think about a time when you didn't know simultaneously the first radio stations announced Harding being made the president, and it was estimated 500 to 1,000 people heard that radio broadcast announcing that presidential election, I think, in 1920, I guess. That's crazy. A 1,000 people found out the same, 1,000 people not in the same room found out the same information at the same time. That is a game changer for civilization. Think about that. Really, like, take a step back, take yourself out of 2023 and think about that. That is amazing. I, I grew up on radio. New York radio is fantastic. You're comparing it to television, but Hello, podcast listeners. <laughs> yeah. I think you guys might very much uh, appreciate the invention of just listening to something. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, thousands of you are listening to us talk about the season finale, nineteen twenty-three. More of you are listening to this than heard about the presidential election. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. We're better than Harding. <laughs> we got to get to Tiona. 
Tiona finally gets reunited with her father. And I think everyone here probably breathed a sigh of, a sigh of relief to see them actually reunited and not be ripped apart or killed or maimed or otherwise in this episode. I know I was happy. Caroline, were you happy to see them finally have that moment, him waking her up in the, in the tent and, and, and telling her we got to go because the more are coming for us. Very, very, very happy. I, I really needed this reuniting moment. I, I really wish it lasted a little longer before Pete just came up right under her arm. <laughs> yeah, let's listen to this clip. Let's just get right into it. Hey, none of that. No goo-goo eyes, no holding hands, no falling in love. If they find us, they will kill us. Hang us from a tree. Bury our bodies face down. All your focus should be on surviving. Fall in love later. They've been trying to kill me since they took me. I don't believe in later. I believe in right now. runs his horse maybe chuckle there when he goes women dad's totally exasperated with their teenage daughters since 1923 but really since 1883 and then really since the beginning of time right now here's the thing and this is pacing and choices i don't have a problem that she and pete plenty cloud fall in love i want it to happen about two episodes from now Yes. Pacing-wise, we haven't even gotten Spencer and Alex out of Italy or off of a boat yet, but we're putting these two already together. Why? What's the rush? They have a long journey south to the Comanche land. The episode ends with them only getting to the Wyoming border, the, the Montana-Wyoming border, and Runs His Horse says, still far to go. Why did we need this now versus... Letting a, a daughter and father who have been ripped apart by the government, by Father Renaud and the missionaries for so long and so abused and all of they've gone through. They haven't. They, the fact that the grandmother is dead doesn't even come up in this episode. Where's her grieving for that? Why pair them up immediately? I understand her point that tomorrow isn't promised. I'm done waiting. I, I, I don't have time to wait to fall in love. But give it some room to breathe narratively, <laughs> no? I, I wanted some Elsa James time, some some father, teenage daughter time. I, I, I wanted him to have a, a hot moment to understand what she's been going through because, you know, he doesn't necessarily know what's been going on exactly with her. And also for him to, like, impart some wisdom and and like just just have some time for just the two of them. It was very rushed because now she's already like rebelling against him. He's already you know exasperated with her. They've only been back together for like a half second. They're already like Bleh. he's already turning his back to sleep and blah blah blah. Like it, it's the whole thing. I was like this is too fast. Like slow right. down, you know, have a minute with your dad and and I I was like Pete, you're being like a lot, you know. <laughs> I mean, he saved your life, dude. Like maybe back off and like be a little respectful of what he's asking. Well, you where know? was the grieving for his father? I mean, let, let's talk about that because right? the episode starts with them with the child killer written on the two priest chest and they're scalped. Now, can you can you stop for just one second there? For sure. Did you feel like that was like maybe not the best idea? 
Because by doing that, advertising it, <laughs> you advertise the fact that Tiona was a part of that. Because how could anyone know that these two priests were child killers unless she was involved? I mean, wouldn't you have rather just leave it to where they find dead bodies? And have no idea who they may have encountered? Well, they went to the same decision-making school as Alex. So, uh, <laughs> But here's the thing, because they wrap Hank for burial, but then just leave his body in the shadow of the crook of the rock. They don't stop to bury him. Mm-hmm. So why wrap him for burial? What do you think they're going to do to that body? That body's not going to get the respect that you think it's going to get. No, wild animals are going to eat it. That's what's going right. to Right. I thought it was very strange to take the time to wrap it, but then not to bury it. And, and you're 100% right. Like, cathartically, I understand understand writing child killer and leaving it and listen the lawman writing with father renaud he demands father renaud goes goes with him and does seem suspect of his things yes i really appreciated that he asked the question like where's the friend well how did she die what what what's going on here and then when they point off to the distance to all of the 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 grave markers enough to warrant a a cemetery he says he seems yeah but the lawman seems you're right adequately suspicious for my liking i thought he actually you know might might be reasonable in some regard here well the fact that he demands renaud go with him the priests go with him together with his body language maybe thing like he wants to keep this guy in front of him and maybe grill him for information since they have now a long journey since it sounds like they're going to go continue going after them down to the comanche land yeah but i mean when but also at the but in the same breath though there's no follow-up question to enough die to warrant a cemetery that feels like that should warrant a follow-up question uh let's talk a little bit more about that remember one of the things that i talked about um when we were talking about life expectancy was that the the most difficult time to get through was actually zero to 15 if you made it to 15 you were likely to live pretty much your full extent of your life pretty much we've got old 78 year old jacob to prove that so it wasn't weird but he could have said a couple more things he could have been like oh you know outbreak of you know smallpox here or whatever 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 you know say something that kind of like waves off you know childhood illnesses what i mean we didn't have anything to really fight those so it was a time when a lot of kids did die you know you talked about why they had like so many children and stuff but he doesn't give any actual reason and i kind of feel like that's what makes the you know, the guy kind of give him like a second look like, mm, really? well, like, it's combined it? with this other student decided to violently murder two of the nuns. And then I'm looking at a cemetery full of dead kids. They all add up to some suspicious behavior. And they have no belongings, you know, like what, what do you mean? And when when Renault said like, yeah, they don't have any belongings or anything, even at that, he kind of paused like, well, what are you doing to these kids? You know, I think it's also important that they show not every law enforcement agent in this time is corrupt and or willing to side with evil because there's a lot of either corrupt government officials being shown so far in the show or impotent law enforcement officials and i'm putting sheriff mcdowell robert patrick's character into that not being decisive so i i'm ready to have a shay thomas level pinkerton officer who actually wants to do the right thing wants to enforce the law in a just way and not just huntiona on this priest's word i don't think this guy is is credited with being a pinkerton isn't he no he's a marshal a marshal yes yeah that was news to me and this was the first time that I was like, oh, this is a marshal. Okay. I don't know if any of that helps in terms of being, you know, I don't know, having a little different POV on it than, say, local official or something like that. I'm not sure. I'm happy for anyone who's willing to give 
additional questions. Like who is going to make someone try to explain what is going on around here? It's the only way any of it's going to stop. Uh, I mean, there's not much more to say here other than, you know, we wish that they would have spaced that. I mean, when when she finally breaks down and it's the first time we've really seen Tiona have a moment to cry. Right. And, yeah. and it makes you appreciate what she's been through since even before she left the res school. She she finally has this moment to just sob and and we all have that time when we finally when we have a, a moment to ourselves we could just break down but she does it in pete's lap and and runs his horse has to listen to his daughter weep silently with his back turned and not <laughs> not comfort her there that's a moment that feels like it should be tiona and her father now maybe there's something more to this okay maybe i'm gonna pump the brakes a little because just in listening to you i'm thinking Maybe he is feeling incredibly guilty about not fighting harder for her to not have to go to the school or not hiding her or not or being not around when she away. was taken. Right. Those types of things. So maybe there's there there's more layers to this relationship. Again, like I'm saying, like, I'm I'm bummed I didn't get to see like this awesome daughter father, you know, reuniting. But maybe that's not their relationship. You know, we know that he was out working for good, for trying to be a provider for his family and everything. But maybe they don't have this relationship that I was wanting to see. And so crying on the stranger boy's lap was like just as good, I guess, in many ways. I don't know. But it just struck me when you were talking about it. And I was like, man, maybe he doesn't really have a relationship with her to be comforting her. Right. And the support from that comes from the grandmother's conversation with the magistrate on the on the res when she's explaining that she's Tiona's really family, even though she's not a mother or father, she's the grandmother because the father is gone. And remember, the the magistrate says, oh, he's abandoned. He's abandoned your family. No, he's not abandoned. He's working. But that word abandoned maybe illuminates the relationship that Tiona has or doesn't have, in fact, with Runza's horse. Right. A lack of relationship. And that's and, you know, maybe that's why that plays out the way it does. And in even the fact that Pete's willing to be like a soft place, you know, again, all of a sudden she's like head over heels in love with him, you know, just because he's a little kind to her, just a little kindness. But young people, she's 15, I think she's supposed to be 15 in the show. He's he's obviously either late teens, maybe early 20s at most. People grieve differently. And Pete and young people, it it is believable. Young people would turn to quote unquote love as a way of dealing with their grief and dealing with their trauma he's lost yeah. his father of course he's going to want to feel love and i'm using air quotes again she all she's been through whether or not she even knows that her grandmother is dead all she went through at the residential school at the hands of father renaud and the and the nuns of course she wants to be loved and have her hand held and and feel true affection and runs his horse clearly is not in an affectionate mood he's trying to keep them alive he needs to keep them moving and keep them alive so she's going to seek out affection where it's available it's available with pete because it, it's runs his horse has got business on his mind he's got yeah. keeping us alive on his mind so I, I see both sides to it but i still would have liked this to be paced out longer because we have had so much trauma with tiona let's let's get some good breathing let's get some good catharsis let's see a slow build of romance and good things happening over a period of time and some like quality like love between a parent and a child here too like something that she has been missing for so long there was something about that that i just i was aching for like i wanted her to have this big bear hug with him 
that just seemed to last forever, you know, that that where she finally felt safe. And I I didn't get enough of that from for my own liking, which, you know, again, we've explained a lot of reasons why that might not have happened. But I hope we get something a little bit more where she just really feels finally a little bit safe, even though, God, I like threw my head back when I realized they're still going to continue to hunt her. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, like same. Of all the storylines that I was begging to come to an end, it was this hunting her business that I was just like, shit. That means we probably have eight more episodes of this. We thought the finale was, remember, oh, he's going to take, they're going to take the fight to the they're school. They're going to go make war in the school. Yeah, no. <laughs> No, no, they're they're no. they're in they're full running mode. On the run, and they and now they've got more people hunting them. But we know the same way. This story is about the the Dutton. The story is about Montana. And when we were talking about Alex and Spencer, the rainwater story is also in Montana. It is not in Oklahoma or in North Texas where the Comanches are. It is in Montana. The rainwaters are of Montana, so they have to get back there. They can go hide. They can go blend in where there is no law. That's what the lawman susses out. Canada is smart, but these people are unpredictable. They're going to go south. He he puts the plan together immediately. Well, and let's remember the Captain Shipley's suggestion was that that uh, Spencer and Alex head through Galveston, bringing them up through Texas, bringing them up through pro- probably Oklahoma, and that's where we think Tiona and them are heading. So it's possible that they cross paths there and not. In Montana. And runs his horse knows the Dutton name, right? Mm-hmm. Because yep. Mr. Dutton gave him the sheep and he knows that and he knew the name from Zane. So maybe there's something there, right? Maybe. And I, that, you know, I love it. I, I think another possibility here, and I know the 1883 heads out there are, are going to be jumping up and down on this. Sam, Elsa's second love of 1883, I believe was Comanche. I think people out there are going to be asking themselves of all the tribes they can be traveling to in, in this part of the country where there were a lot of tribes and a lot of reservations. Sam Sam would be like 60. He would be 12 years older than John was. John was 45. So he would be in his like late 50s. But Sam or Sam's descendants may be coming to the mix. I mean, it's very reasonable he's still alive. He would be a chief probably or or a man of importance in his tribe. Yeah, he would be. Yeah, he would be an elder in the tribe. But who who better to welcome them and understand the plate? How weird would that be? I mean, it would be super cool to like bring back and actually tie back to 1880. Like oh, that, I could hear that. the 1883 head squealing for that because yeah, I know they've I mean, been waiting for be that. Fun. I just I hope that I mean, like I said, Sam, that character of Sam would be quite old. So and and I mean, they were living out on the plains out in the open, you know. But yeah, but maybe a descendant of it, though. And, and who knows who who knows what impact Elsa had on his life after they parted ways. You know, presumably he went to look for her where they were supposed to meet in that spring, that spring thaw. Mm-hmm. And, and she never showed who knows story wise or lore wise what Elsa Dutton represented to Sam and his people that maybe comes into play here, especially if they hook up with Spencer Dutton. Right. You know, that's a name that's going to stick out to the to those people if that story got widely known. So. Right. Well, and, and circling back to the lack of a voiceover from Elsa in this episode, then that really makes me feel like I wish they had one in this time for those who maybe forgot about Sam or forgot about where they were when they met him and all that stuff that I feel like Elsa's voice might have brought them back, you know, brought them to where we were in 1883. That would have been like a cool tie in. 
Well, guys, I mean, this is a lot. This was almost three hours of our discussion. There are ups, there were downs, there was criticisms, there were things we loved. We would love to hear from you. We really want to know what you guys thought about this finale. Uh, we are we are recording this well before people have any opinions on it because y'all haven't seen it yet. But please reach out to us in the Facebook group, on Twitter, on on Instagram. You know, let us know what you thought because we we definitely want to work this out. And now we have nothing to think about until Yellowstone comes back or four sixes or 1943 or the second season of 1923 i don't know what's next but for for now anyway this is going to be the last maybe you hear from caroline and i a while and it for as relates to the duttons you could come visit us over at your honor though and come watch that series with us because we are covering season two of that one and it's a great one and also weekly we do a weekly wrap-up that we would love for you guys to come and listen to that to that podcast where we just talk about the shows that we watched that week and things that we could recommend and things that we would say like mm, maybe better spent time elsewhere but come and check those things out before you just say goodbye to us all or the go way catch to up the on the gilded age podcast season one because oh we'll be covering God, season yeah. two when that comes out in this fall so so many good things coming so you guys go check out the whole catalog over at podclubhouse.com this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone Podcast 1923 edition. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star message, we would really appreciate it. We will read your review if it's really nice, just like these fine folks that I'm going to read right now. This one comes from Plano People. Good, clean, fun. Five stars. It's like we're sitting around and talking about the show together. I like the way you use clips from the show to set the discussion. Thank you for doing this. Or this one. Love this podcast from Fran358. Love this podcast and the two and the two hosts on this show are amazing. Well, Fran, we thank you for listening. And Planet People, we thank you for listening. And we thank you guys, so many of you listening to us every week, keeping us high in the charts, really have helped the visibility of the show, really have just brought so many help bring so many other listeners to the show and, and bring us some really great discussions we love it we love talking about the show we love talking to you guys we love talking to each other and uh, we, we can't wait to do it again for season 2 of 1923 or whatever comes next no Google eyes but leave us a 5 star review please thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original Pod Clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.